What's up, everybody? This is Rafael Garcia, and today is January 25th, 2017. I'm back with Schwan Humes, actually here at 8 o'clock today, everybody. Let's note this and take this down, that we are both here at 8 p.m. on Wednesday to talk to you about MMA and all things from last week's, last weekend's action. Looking forward to this weekend and talking a little bit of news. But first and foremost, I want to always make sure I introduce Schwan. How are you doing there, sir? Hey, how you doing? Surprise, everybody. On time. I know. Try, try, try not to go into shock when you hear my voice at 8 o'clock on, 8 o'clock on the dot. Hey, it's all good, man. It's all good. We all got that adult life stuff that we got to take care of to make sure that we um, are even able to do what we do. So, yeah, man, um, we appreciate having you here. Always great, dude. And um, looking forward to talking about some things that went down this weekend. So, um Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. We got quite a bit of things, quite a bit of things to talk about today. I actually kind of forgot about one topic, so um, we're gonna jump into that as well. We're gonna add Bellator 171 to the list of things to talk about. I actually kind of forgot about that earlier today, but um, before we even get into that, so let's see. Let's see. Let's see. First things first. We have Bellator 170 that we're gonna talk about, where we watched Tito Ortiz. Um, close out his career with a win over um, Cho Sonnen in a little more than two minutes to cap out his um, pretty interesting MMA career. We'll talk about that in a second. But, um, Shawan, talk to me about that. What, were you surprised? Um, I don't remember how you picked this fight going down, but that really kind of really doesn't matter at this point because Tito got the win. Um, were you surprised, and did this fight live up to, to the hype? Uh, I was kind of shocked. I, I, uh, I didn't take into account the time off and then take into account that even though Tito isn't an elite light heavyweight anymore, for his time frame, he, he's still one of the bigger, more physically dominating light heavyweights. He just doesn't have the athleticism. The fight wasn't bad. I mean, it was short, which meant it was a lot of energy. It didn't drag on. You had uh, some interesting grappling exchanges and everything was going full speed. So from that point of view, it was actually pretty good. I mean, when you saw Bonner and a Tito fight that one time, it was like about a round and a half of really quality fighting, maybe even less than that. And the rest of it was just almost like underwater slow motion striking and takedown attempts. So from that perspective, it not being dragged out, it being a quick start uh, and a quick finish, it, it was it was entertaining for what it was. I mean, that was probably the best case scenario they could have hoped for outside of Chael Sonnen winning as far as the fight, having it be something short, with a lot of action where both guys look looked a lot better than they had in the past, you know, past couple of years or the past couple outings. Did they look better than they have in the past? Um, for Chael, I don't think he did. Um, I think, you know, the time off definitely was clear. Um, and it was very apparent that he wasn't the Chael Sonnen. Even the Chael Sonnen that had that great fight with Michael Bisbing, would have done a better job in this. Is he? Is it because the size differential? Is he that far outclassed, for lack of a better term, when it comes uh, to um, the lightweight division, by heavyweight? I, excuse me. I, I mean Tito. Tito. It, I mean the shell was never really the biggest. Was never the biggest light heavyweight in the world to begin with, and and secondly, um, you know I hate to even bring it up, but a lot a lot of people. A lot of people mentioned the the differences in his body type and how it looked. Wonder if being off the PRT kind of impacted his performance and his overall 
his overall ability to get in the shade because he didn't he just didn't look at in the shade that I'm used to seeing him in. And that was kind of a shock from with all this time off. He'd been training consistently, and he'd be kind of coming into Bellator. He knew they were going to put him on a big platform to get that big ratings hit. So I figured he'd be in tip as good a shape as he could be in. And if this is as good a shape as he can be in, uh, I'm a little bit concerned for him for him moving forward, depending on who they match him up with. Yeah, um, you know, I think that they are still in the Chelsea Sunday business. I think they are in the Chelsea Sunday business for the extended period of time. But I don't want to say they have to be, they should be concerned about what they saw. Um, he's definitely, he's not a light heavyweight. You know, we've made that clear. Um, and again, he was coming off of what, three years away from the sport? I mean, he's done some grappling events here and there, but that's not nearly the same type of ordeal as preparing for a um, MMA fight against someone who's definitely bigger than you. So, I mean, it, it I. Is, but from the other perspective, since there weren't really a lot of strikes thrown in this fight, I know it was an MMA fight, but to a certain degree, it was almost like a grappling match just in an MMA form. I, I don't think they even really threw any strikes at all in the in the in the entire fight yeah that's, that's so, true so, so it kind of makes it to a certain degree it almost makes it look a little more suspicious and look makes it look bad because essentially you have an mma fight but it was a two minute two and a half minute grappling match and um he he got kind of he got manhandled and he got out he, he looked like he just got out class i mean I, I have to admit tito ortiz is not a bad grappler i i forgot how good a grappler tito ortiz and he's He's perfectly capable of submitting people if he can get him into the positions he wants to, and that's what he did with Chael. Uh, what did you see? I mean, did you feel that Chael didn't respond correctly? Do you feel his defense wasn't there, or he he picked the wrong counter when Tito shot in for him initially? You know, this is going to set up another part of this conversation that I think we're going to segue into clearly. But um, I, Chael Sonnen has never been a great grappler. He's he's never. It's never been something he's been good at. He's good at he's good at wrestling you to the ground and basically being able to hold you into a position if your if your offensive grappling isn't sound. He's good at being able to hold you in a position and rack up points. Um, that's not what occurred Friday or whatever day that was Saturday uh, when him and Tito hit the mat. He had a brief flash where it looked like he was going to get to a position to of control, but I think that's where the size and strength of Ortiz kind of played into getting him out of that position and putting him in the in the semi head and arm semi head squeeze that finished the fight. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to say that he. I think he may have just made a bad decision there. There clearly was the conversation that came up of this fight being fixed. I'm not sure if you heard um, or saw Dan Hardy's tweet and then his further explanation on the MMA Hour this week, but um, that conversation did come up um, because people were saying that Sonnen didn't even really attempt to defend the choke; that he allowed himself to get sucked right into it and get finished. Um, I'm not going to join that uh, join that 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 space of conversation because I just think that that's a dangerous dangerous uh, slippery slope for us to play with when it comes to mixed martial arts and sports as a whole. Just because um, you know there are massive repercussions for fixing a fight, um, massive massive repercussions. So I I'm not going to go on record and say that I think that this fight was fixed. I think Sonnen just made a bad movement decision um, in the grappling space, and Ortiz made him pay for it. Yeah, I, I wasn't really going with the fix thing myself. 
I mean, we we've seen we we've seen more egregious grappling to mistakes made on a larger state larger scale. I mean, recently in the UFC, a couple maybe the last event or the event before that, I saw two two guys grappling, and it was just it was beyond amateur hour. So it's not like you can't have pro fighters who don't have limited skill sets. And and people forget this, even though they're pro fighters and they train and they have good camps, you can get you can get caught up in the nerves. You can get you can get be out of you can be out of fighting and then all of a sudden get a deer in headlights. You can be too anxious and make just terribly silly mistakes that no person who does this for a living should be made. We see it happen in striking all the time. We've seen it in wrestling all the we've seen it in the striking aspect of MMA. We've seen it in wrestling. Now we've seen it in grappling. I mean I can't really bash Chell too much because one, he has a history of being submitted, for one, and two, I mean, we have most people who are current MMA fans did see Pat Barry get checked, get choked out by Mirko Krokop with no hooks in. So if you could see something like that, then it's not hard for me to believe that Chell got in a position and maybe panicked when Tito started squeezing. Because from what I understand, everybody says Tito is a very, very strong guy. Even guys now who fought him, young guys have said that Tito was very physically strong. So I can't imagine that if he gets you in a position where he can just squeeze and exert that much force, I, I can't imagine that, especially a guy who hasn't been in that position recently or hasn't, wasn't expecting to be in it and hadn't been in the fight game for about three years, I, I could see them tapping. You know, I could see them maybe panicking and do that quick that tap, and then it's like, I should have just toughed that out. I mean, and even if you never fought, you've been, if you're a martial artist and you train grappling, you've been on the mat, and somebody gets you something that you tap quick and you're just like, oh, if I, I just panicked. I tapped too quick. I could have hung on a little bit more. I could have worked my way out of it, but it's too late. The tap was made and that, that's the end of the fight or that's the end of the round in that case. What's amazing is um, I've been in that situation where I've tapped to something and you're like, fuck, I should never tap to that. Um, so yeah, it does happen. I'm not saying that that occurred here. I don't know if Sonnen had that thought as soon as he tapped, but um, I can see why people were, con not concerned, but were distressed for a second like you got to be kidding me all these build up and we get two and a half minutes of this um so i see how that frustration could have come across um it's just un unfortunate that that's the whole situation yeah I, I i just don't see it that way i'm not saying that he i'm not saying it's impossible that it could have happened it, but as much as chael sonnen's a, a showman and he puts on the act and he sells fights i've always felt that to a certain degree as far as the competition comes he has a certain kind of integrity that he's not going to throw away for a dollar. I mean, like he said at the press conference, I'll say whatever, I'll do whatever before the fight, but in the fight and after the fight, I'm going to be completely 100% real about who I am and uh, how I am as a fighter. You know, he said he that's how he is, and I, I think that's what he did. I think he went out there, he got caught, he panicked, he got submitted, and then he regretted it instantly. And, after, and seeing those post-conference comments, it seemed like he really regretted doing that, and he underestimated what he what, what exactly he would be in for jumping back into MMA. I don't think he was really 100% locked in to the competition phase of it, and I think he regrets it, and and I think he feels embarrassed because I mean, he's a, he puts on an act, but he's a proud competitor. He was a very good amateur wrestler. He was competed at world class level, and he's been at some of the highest levels in MMA. I, I don't think he's the kind of guy who would who would just put himself out there like that for embarrassment, just for money. I think he takes some pride in his performance and his career as a fighter. I mean, Andre Galvao didn't finish him that quickly when they had their grappling match in Men of Morris. Um, you know, same thing with John Jones. He didn't finish him that quickly as well. So 
for Submission Underground. And he better be glad he doesn't have to face Gary Toonin on Sunday um, because that was not going to go well for him. But, you know, Bellator pulled him out of that event. But um, let's, let's focus on this right now. We'll talk about that later. Um, what's next for Sun? And how does Bellator keep him to be that viable draw? Because this show did 1.8 million buy, buys, or excuse me, views. Um, so that that's a hell of a number uh, for them. How do they keep him a viable name? The, the good thing about Sun is we've seen him in some kind of make some ridiculous moves and tap out in fights he's winning and get caught in submissions. That's That's been seen numerous times. And we've seen him, you know, with the spinning back fist that he just threw and missed and then got KO'd by Silva. We've seen him in some humbling situations. We've seen him outclassed before. People, it, it hasn't taken away from who he is because people tune in for the character. If you really watch his fights, none of his fights have been terribly exciting. I mean, he takes people down, he controls them, and he works them over. That's essentially the large majority of his fights. He's not really an action fighter. What sells what sells the fights is the, the stuff he talks before the fights, the insight he gives you into the perception of an MMA fighter. And I guess some of the, even though he, he kind of gives a little bit of pro wrestling angle, he surprisingly he shoots surprisingly straight when it comes to MMA fighters, their mindsets, their training, their skill sets and how they're viewed by the public and by other MMA fighters. He, he really puts a lot of himself out there, and he shoots very straight. That's what people really buy into. Nobody really buys into him as the greatest fight ever because he's never been a champion in any organization, and nobody considers him one of the toughest fighters ever because he's been tapped out in numerous times. I think he's been stopped a couple times by strikes, too, on high-profile cards. So a lot of it is it's the combination of the entertainment and the sporting event. Um, I think you can still sell it. He he hasn't fought in three years. That's a fact. He came in against a guy who was three and one prior to uh, fighting Sonnen. And the only guy he lost to was the former light heavyweight champion in Bellator. So he was fighting a guy who had been fighting often, fighting a fairly high level of competition and was bigger and stronger than him and had been a champion for the UFC for many years. So you can spin that. I think you can spin that, spin that loss legitimately. And I really think there's other guys even in Belter right now, who he could beat. Now, you take him down and start controlling him and work from the top, you might have a problem. But how many guys are really going to be able to take Chael Sonnen down and control him, even now? I mean, Tito's, a, Tito's not the wrestler he is, but Tito's a very, very big, very physically strong light heavyweight. He took down Liam McGeary and held him down. He took mm-hmm. down Alexander the Storm Slamenkov. He took him down. Everybody he's faced, he's taken him down and kind of roughed him up. Even, even before he left the UFC, he took down Forrest Griffin. He, so it's not like he's some. It's not like it's not like most guys coming up from middleweight are going to be able to do that to Chael Sonnen. He's he still has a lot of options because he can still sell himself, and all they have to do is get him a win or two, and he's right back in there. And even if they can't get him a win, he's on that senior circuit where people just pay to see the name. They know he's not going to be fighting the creme de la creme. They know he's not the best of the best right now. They're just coming to see a guy they like and a guy they're a fan of in action. So. <clears throat> Where, who would you put him against next? I mean, we have this fight that's coming up with Rashad Evans and King Mo. Do we throw him in there with the loser of, of that fight? I think that there's a lot of value in Sonnen. Um, yeah, what did I say? I said King Mo and... Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Kim, King Mo and Rampage for are rematching. So, you know, you're going to have a loser in that fight. Do you bring someone else for him to bring, like a Melvin Manhole for someone like that? Like, how do you... How do you continue to, to leverage Sonnen and find that perfect 
opponent for him to play off of to get another million views out of out of someone who is I don't want to say washed up, but someone who's definitely in the later years of of his career. Well, the thing that with the thing the thing that's great about Sonnen is you don't just have to wait for fights to to put him in to get his steam rolling again. A lot of the steam he gets going is because of the comments he makes in interviews in analyst positions. There's a lot of avenues they can put Shell Sonnen in where he, he can take he can hold court and bring the fans in and sell them back on why he lost and tell them why they should watch the next fight he has. There's a lot, all you have to do is put a mic in front of Shell Sonnen and he starts selling people, even people who know better. Because I should have known better than to think that he's going to come in and beat Ortiz, but I kind of bought into to who I who I see him as and and how he's performed over the years. And I figured, oh, it's three years off. He should be fresh. He's been training the whole time. He'll be ready to go. And, it, and logically, I shouldn't have thought that. And if I'm thinking that, and I'm a person who can think logically and objectively about the sport and the fighters in it, what's that to the casual fan? Because he's still very popular to casual fans. Um, I mean, there, there's always Vanderlei, Vanderlei sign. And I'm, I think there's a couple young middleweights they have right now who aren't, who aren't very good, who aren't very good grapplers, who he could beat. He could just grind them out of decisions. I mean, once Shell Sonnen gets on top of you, and he, he can physically dominate a lot of people. I mean, there's still guys just based off wrestling alone. There's still a lot of guys he can physically dominate and control. And I think, I think that's a distinct possibility. They're trying to push for the Vanderlei fight. And um, I'm guessing that's the biggest selling fight out there because he has a big fan base. Chael has a big fan base. Um, so that fight makes sense. And even if Chael beats him, it'll most likely be by decision, by taking him down and controlling him. So it won't do too much damage to Vanderlei if he loses. So uh, I think that's the next fight they go. I'd really like to see him fight someone else just to kind of get a win under his belt before he goes in. But at this stage, it's so risky. At the stage he is in his career, they, they might just go straight to Van- Vanderlei. They were expecting him to beat Tito and then come in against Vanderlei with one win already. So I guess they might not want to take any other chances at this stage of his career. So let me ask you this. Um, we're going to change change the direction and talk a little bit more about Tito. Now, um, what do you think about him holding on this the submission for too long? Were you mad at that? Did you think it was egregious? Um, you know, like, do you not really care? Me personally, I'm more like a eh type of guy. I mean, you know, these are guys who, I mean, you're inside of a steel cage fighting someone who you clearly don't like and has had some less than stellar things to say about you. If it was me, you never know. I may I may hold the choke on a little bit tighter too as well. Um, I think back to when Dan Henderson dropped the elbow of um, when he dropped the bionic elbow on Michael Bisbing after knocking him out. I mean, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that this doesn't happen, but I'm also not surprised when it does because you know these are men and women who are competing in a high um, high stress, high adrenaline situation and it you're not thinking clearly when you're in a fist fight with another human being whether it be for money or for self-preservation so i'm not totally mad at tito for holding on to the choke a little bit longer yeah i'm not mad at him i mean i i see it the same way you do i mean we had we've had we've had guys you know a guy clearly knocked out and they're still throwing fists at him because in their mind air quotations the ref needs to pull me off him does he really need to? I don't think so. He's clearly unconscious. And is and Tito held on to the choke a little bit longer, but was that worse than when John Jones had that guillotine on a Leoto and literally dropped him face first onto the mat? No, it was it wasn't as bad aesthetically, and it wasn't as bad as far as him him being completely out. 
I, I kind of I'm I'm like you like you said I'm kind of surprised when, when it doesn't happen because you get guys with, who use that emotion to compete they use it to fuel them when training and then then you get an actual physical way to release it not just like in a basketball game or a football game where you get a touchdown or you slam dunk the ball you could actually put your hands on the person who's cr created this doubt or questioned your character or questioned your fighting skills i'm really surprised it doesn't happen more often i to be honest i mean you're getting a chance to put your hands on that person so um it doesn't disappoint me it does the only bad part about it is tito could have left on the highest of high notes where he totally he he was totally high class where he just he got the tap, he got up, shook son and tan, you know, and 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 left it at that. And uh, he kind of missed that opportunity. That would have been the way to go out as an ambassador, but it wouldn't have been true to Tito Ortiz as the character he's been over the years. But it'd been nice to see him kind of like just let it go, shake his hand, and uh, express his point at the post post fight conference. Yeah, um, I'm not too mad at, it, but again, I, I definitely see your um, see your. I'm he, he knows You're it was sorry. wrong because he started, he started explaining. If he didn't, he knows it's wrong. wrong exactly. Yeah, he he started. Well, you know, I was caught up and I had some ill will. And the minute he started explaining it, I knew he felt he shouldn't have done that, and he knew he crossed the line. Like I said, I don't have a problem with it as a fan of the sport and as an adult, but as a person who works with a lot of kids, as Tito does, and wants to be as brand friendly as Tito likes to be, that that can kind of hurt a little bit. That's gonna he's gonna have to explain that to some people because they're not going to want to hear that. What are you teaching my kid at, who's training at your gym or training with your wrestling team? What? Um, so actually, I, that, I was going to segue a, a different way, but um, I'm going to go ahead and, and talk about it now. Let's talk about something that I'm not bad at. Um, my boy, Paul Daly, hitting Brennan Ward with an early candidate for knockout of, of the year. Um, it's funny, I, I wrote about Paul Daly last week. Um, about what could have been with this guy had he stayed in the UFC and not been basically blacklisted for that situation with Josh Koshtek. And he doesn't disappoint. He comes out, he staggers Brennan Ward twice before hitting him with a double knee that's like right out of a video game, like somebody hit the A button twice. And he, he lands it perfectly. Ward goes out, he's out before he hits the mat. Daly doesn't need to finish up with any follow-up shots. I mean, how, how, this guy keeps doing it. He keeps doing it, and it's still impressive time and time again. What did you think of that um, performance? I, I thought it was – I have, before I get into it, remember we, we, we've had this conversation twice about Brandon Ward when he's had fights coming up. And, and I actually wrote an article about it that was put out this week. And the issue always is he's got a look. He's exciting. He seems to have a, a wide variety of skills. He's got a winning record overall and a winning record in Bellator. Why is this? And it's clear they want to make him a star. It's clear they want to give him the rub, as they say in pro wrestling, and give him that push. But every single time he meets a named guy, when he has to put the rubber to the road and beat a name that really legitimizes him, he always finds some way to lose. And once again, he found a way to lose against Paul Daly. Now, Paul Daly is no joke. He's got a great chin. He's got excellent counters. His hands are sharp and accurate, and he, he throws heat. I've I'll still never forget how he KO'd Scott Smith. I thought Scott got – I thought a sniper shot him because the way he – Who was the Russian good. guy that Paul Daly knocked out? And I thought – and he looked like he knocked his head off his body. This was after – this was – I think this was in Bama after he got released oh, yeah, by the yeah. UFC. But he hit somebody with an uppercut that looked like he literally killed this man in the middle of the cage, and I sat there and witnessed the whole thing. Yeah, when, when Paul Daly hits people, for the most part, 
they go away. So I don't want to take anything away from Paul Daly. He's fought a very high class of opponent. Some of the names he's beaten are some of the better welterweight fighters of our generation. Maybe not the very best, but some of the best guys. And the guys he's faced are some of the very best guys of our generation. Paul Daly has lost a step. He, he still he still got a quick trigger. He still got a quick counter. He still got a good chin. He still hits hard, but his chin isn't as good as he used to be. His accuracy isn't as sharp as it used to be. His explosiveness, he can't explode as many times in the fight as he used to. He's not the Paul Daly who went back and forth with Nick Diaz and strike force. He's not that guy anymore. So when they put in Brendan, Brendan Ward with him, they were hoping that maybe Paul had lost a step enough where Brendan, and Paul was coming off a loss, that Brendan could beat him, have that legitimate name added to his resume and get elevated to elite contender status in the welterweight division. But he couldn't do that because he, as he's often known to do, he showed poor defense and showed poor fight IQ and a poor strategy actually coming out to throw hands with Paul Daly. In what world is that? And until that's like me taking down Damian Maya. That's like when Gunnar Nelson decided he's going to purely grapple Damian Maya because he can, he can beat him on the ground, I guess. I suppose I'm glad you have that kind of faith in yourself, but why don't we just fight smart and then say we could have grappled him if we wanted to. And Brendan Ward didn't fight smart. He came out there looking to establish his standup. And then once he got hurt, then he went for a takedown. But once you get hurt and the guy realizes that, then you become predictable. And he, the damage had already been done. He couldn't maintain control. He was fighting to get another takedown, trying to get in a clinch. And he was standing in one position. He was leaning too hard on Daly. Daly hit him with the spinning elbow. And then, as most wrestlers, when they get hurt, guys who like to strike when they're fresh, but when they get hurt, the minute Daly took a step for him, he went in for the shot. Daly knew he was going for the shot and finished him with that knee. And that knee was terrible. I wouldn't wish my worst enemy getting hit with a knee like that. And right. it was Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. It, 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 the fight was over. And it was a great showing for Paul Daly. And it showed... It, puts him back on the map in Bellator because he, he did lose that fight. He lost the fight against Lima and Lima pulled away late and essentially outworked him and to a certain degree outclassed him. But now people are talking about Daly, possibly for Rory McDonald, maybe getting a title shot down the line. His whole career has been rejuvenated and Brendan Ward's career has taken yet another hit as he's lost within a round to another name fighter that he was supposed to beat to get over the hump to be a true contender. So it's interesting. It's a crossroads match for both of them. And the guy who's supposed to be on the way up is once again on the trend down. And the guy who's supposed to be on the way down is once again trending up. It it just shows you how crazy combat sports are, MMA in particular, because this should have been an easy night's work for Brendan Ward. You come out, throw a little bit, get the takedown. Paul Daly has been out-wrestled by numerous guys, numerous guys in his career, top-level wrestlers, okay wrestlers, good grapplers, so-so grapplers. He's been taken down and and out grappled many times in his career. And Brendan Ward, for some reason, decided he was going to try something else, and he paid a high price for it. Yeah, it, it was a um, it was a nasty shot that man would have put anyone to sleep. Um, would have put anyone to sleep. And then Paul Daly then goes on record and calls out Rory McDonald. I get it. I think it's a bad idea for him. Um, but what are your thoughts about Paul Daly? calling out Roy McDonald. It's a smart play. I mean, he needs to keep, he needs, he wants, he wants big paydays. And since Bellator has sponsors and he's got, he doesn't just have sponsors locally. He has sponsors all over a fight with Roy McDonald, who at the time he left the UFC was still a top five, top seven 
welterweight in the world, if he can somehow beat that guy or even just be in a competitive fight with that guy, that even a loss against Rory McDonald raises his stock. So either way, whether he wins or he loses, he wins, it raises his stock a whole lot. It loses, it still raises his stock more than halfway because of the caliber Rory McDonald is and the cachet his name has and the cachet his camp comes with. On a technical level, I don't see it being a good fight for him because Paul Daly can't maintain any sort of pace or volume. He he fights in spots now, and they're very dynamic and explosive spots, but Paul Daly isn't controlling the pace anymore. He can't fight at a high rate for an extended period of time. He likes to bait you and land those big, heavy counter shots or, or early leads. McDonald's got very good footwork. McDonald's very long. He's very big for the welterweight division. He's got that jab. He throws a, a wide variety of strikes. And while he isn't the striker, Paul Delius, strategically, and with cage IQ, he's a much better striker in regards to the intelligence of the strikes and the strategy behind them. Not just that, he can, he's a competent wrestler. And he's very very good on top control and putting ground and pound and finishing guys. So if Daly gets too wild on the feet or decides he's going to prove a point, McDonald always has a takedown. And then like Brendan Ward, McDonald's not going to for stand-up exchanges. He's not going to go in waiting, looking for a knockout. He's going to fight smart. He's going to fight disciplined. He's going to fight defensively responsible, extend daily, and win a decision or take him down and beat him up into a decision, or if not a stoppage. Unless McDonald's been totally ruined by his last couple fights, I don't see a way that Daly beats him. He's just faced a better competition. He's got the better skill set. And even though Daly's been fighting longer, um, McDonald's got the better class of experience and the better resume by far. So I, I don't think it's a good matchup for him. It's an exciting fight. It's a fight that sells. It's a fight that gets ratings. It's a fight that'll get the hardcore fans respect. But from a technical and strategic level, it's a very, very bad fight for Paul Daly. He's got the technical skills on the feet, but he doesn't have the technical skills anywhere else. And even though he's good on the feet technically, strategically, he strategically he's not great in, in, in MMA matches. And secondly, his cardio doesn't hold up. So even if he has a smart game plan, I have no faith that he can maintain it in a high-paced, active fight against a guy with Roy's size, strength, length, and caliber of skill and strategy. Now, if Roy's been wrecked and he doesn't have anything left, that's a different discussion. But he's taken as much time as he can to recover mentally and physically. So I expect when he comes in for him to be at 110%. And a guy with his kind of experience who's fought at the rate he's fought the past couple of years, I can't see him losing everything he's known and everything he's done in a year, especially with the coach he has and the camp he comes from. Yeah, man, and um, I I, th- I get why he um asked for that fight, but I'm with you on that. I think it's a bad matchup for him, and um, one that's probably not going to end too well. Um, I could see him getting stopped via submission in that fight, or just getting jabbed to death um for three to five rounds, depending on on how long of uh, depending on if it was a main event or or not. Um, and what else from Bellator 170 caught your eye? Um, the biggest thing that the, the, I like, I like the Machida fight. It was interesting. The Bellator seems to be going the route of exciting action fighter with him in boxing. They have guys who are action fighters. They're not real title contenders and never really going to be champions unless a bunch of weird things happen. They're guys who, you know, win or lose are going to put on exciting fights. And Machida is that kind of fighter. His brother is more surgical in how he fights, more technical and more defensive and more precise. 
Chinzo seems a little, he seems meaner to me. Like when he knocks somebody down, he's looking to put the boots to him. He's looking to kick him. He's looking to unload hammer fists. Like he fights very measured and very, very precise. But it's like he really wants to hurt you. And Machida just seems like he's trying to find the most, Leota seems like he's trying to find the most efficient and safe way to take, to eliminate a threat. Chinzo seems like he's trying to just end you. Like when he lands those right hand, when he hit that guy, that guy was out. It's like the last guy hit. And when the guy went down, he was ready to follow up with some vicious ground and pound and kicks. And the ref has to pull him off. He just seems to have a mean streak that Leota doesn't have. So um, I, I was like seeing him fight. It's interesting to see if Bellator is going to try to go where they get names and they have important fights, or they're just going to get a bunch of guys with limited skill sets and some ability and just put on the most exciting fights they can. Because that's usually the way it goes. You have a lot of exciting name fights that are important. They may be boring or maybe exciting, or you have a bunch of no name or mid tier guys who just constantly put on really good fights. And that's what brings the fans in. So I'm still not sure what route Bellator is taking. It seems like they're leaning towards making fun fights and interesting fights for the fans more so than having top name guys, except at the very tip top of the divisions. And then uh, I like seeing Emmanuel Sanchez. He's a good fighter and he has a lot. He seems to have like a lot of potential, like, he he seemed like a guy who could be UFC caliber in my opinion. Everybody their lighter weight classes usually is UFC caliber already. But that, those are the two things that I like the most out of the Bellator. Um. So yeah, overall I thought it was a pretty good show. Um. I thought that there that I thought the Campos fight was pretty good. I don't think I'll, I'm interested in seeing what they do with the lightweight division. I think that they're very good at the top. Um, at the top half there. Same thing with Featherweight, but the rest of the division is kind of like filtered through. So we'll see what happens with that. I don't think that they have really too many options to go. Um, they do have something coming up with Bellator 171, which is this weekend and features um, Melvin Gillard and Ch- um, Chidi Njokwani. Um, they also have some other interesting bouts on, on this fight, but what do you think about that main event? And is there anything else from this showcase that catches your attention? Anytime I see Melvin fight, it's kind of must-watch because he still has talent, but it's almost like a train wreck, you see. It's like you see a guy who, like, three or four years ago was on the cusp of a title fight in the UFC, and now he's bounced from the UFC to WSOF to Bellator. And he, has to, he hasn't been spectacular in any of these organizations since he's left the UFC. Um, I'm interested in just to see what happens, to be quite honest. I, I like Melvin as a guy from what I've heard of him. I really liked his fight style before it, when he's using the athletic counterpunching skills. When he tries to walk right in on people and blow people out, he, that never works for him. He's not sharp enough coming forward, and his defense gets lax, and he does not have a chin. Like, he doesn't have a chin to really take big shots. People mistake it from that because he hits people so hard that guys don't really commit the shots, and they kind of let him bully them and pick his shots. But he doesn't – you hit him clean, and, and Melvin gets rocked and hurt quite a bit. He, he He's lost the – and the worst part is Bellator's already given him his gimme fight. They've given him three fights, essentially, he should win, and he only won one of them. So if he loses again, I, I can't see Bellator keeping him because I assume they paid good money to get him, and he's only had one fight. And after that fight, he was suspended for some kind of, uh, I think it was a drug issue, if I recall correctly. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think it was like a, um, like a, uh, I don't think it was a failed drug test. Or, excuse me, I don't think it was like a PED failed, failed drug test. Yeah, well, either way, just it's yet another example of how mentally he's not always locked in to doing what he needs to do to compete at the highest levels, whether it's developing his skill set. Because he's technically speaking, as far as his techniques and his strategy, he's been the same fighter for the past 
four or five years, if not regressing. And he hasn't always made weight, which shows he's not in shape or he's fighting in the wrong weight class. And then he's done these things that have gotten him in trouble with organizations and gotten in trouble outside of the cage with organizations. And that's been something that's happened throughout the entirety of his career. So you always wonder what Melvin you're going to get. And you always wonder what's going to happen when, it, when he fights, because he's, he's just an enigma on every possible, in every possible way you, you can be one. He, he's just the most unreliable fighter, most gifted, but unreliable fighter I've seen in, in MMA. It, it, it's, it's confounding to me. You know, I thought he'd be three and zero by this point, and now he's he's only one and two, and and on the and in my opinion, on the verge of getting cut if he has another loss. And against Injiguani, I think he could because the guy's got range, the guy's got sharp strikes, the guy's comes in with responsible defense. He's physical, and he keeps a he keeps a fairly high pace if if the fight gets into a firefight. I, I don't know where Melvin's chin is. I don't know where his training's at as far as the sharpness. I don't know where his weight's at. He misses it so many times. It's just it's just hard to even pick his fights or or get give an impression on him because you never know what you're gonna get from this guy. Yeah, that's that's the thing, you know. You never really know what you're going to get from him. Um, is there anything else on this card that kind of stands out to you that, that you're looking forward to seeing? Uh, don't they have, is this? Do they have a women's title fight on this card? I believe not. The Marlos Conan. They do have a fight, a women's title fight, high up on the card though. They have um. Jessica Middleton and Elise Smith Jaeger. I, I always like watching the girl, the uh, women's fights on Bellator. I like women's MMA in general, but the women's fights in Bellator, I I don't think I've ever seen a fight. Even the fights that might have been a little bit slower, they're they're just always they always have a point of interest to me. Something strategically or technically stands out, or just the intensity of the fight stands out. Where I'm always, I'll always t- I'll tune into a Bellator's women's fight before where I t- turn into almost any other fight. It doesn't involve people that I don't I don't know well or I haven't been a fan of for years because usually their fights are just uh, even at the lower levels are just much better. You have two regional girls fighting. I've seen it be ten times better than the multitude of regional guys guys I've seen fight on Bellator. It just consistently across the board the women's fights seem to be better regardless if they're the highest level or at their lowest level of MMA. In my opinion, it's not always the cleanest technically. But as far as the quality of the fight, the competition, the intensity of the competition, it, it's usually much more entertaining than, than the men's fights I've seen. Um, we're going to kind of set, we're going to veer off of a path here, but, um, you know, Marlos Conan is, is preparing for a, um, a title fight. I guess, I think I guess Julia Budd over in Bellator. And what do you think about both of those fighters? Um, they're, they're two longstanding women's MMA names. They may not be the most popular, but they're definitely two people that are kind of, kind of, they can be considered pioneers for w- women's mixed martial arts. What are your thoughts on them and and their careers overall in this title fight coming up? Uh, it'd be nice to see Kunin get a ti- get another title in a major organization. She's even though people very rarely talk about her, she's actually a, of course, a pioneer in women's MMA, but she's also one of the greatest competitors in women's MMA. Her her record is without you can't you can't even tarnish her record. She's only really lost, except in the last fight she lost in Bellator, and that was a, a person who missed weight. She she hasn't really lost to anybody who isn't been the very best of the best. And even though she lost to, to Cyborg in two fights, she was able to have some moments and, and survive much longer than most people have. She was a champion in Strike Force. She was a, I think she was a champion over in Japan. And if she wins in Bellator, that would be like three organizations that she's held a title in. She's one of the 
the best all-round fighters and one of the biggest one of the biggest faces for the sport before the sport blew up. A lot of fans only know Ronda Rousey and Misha Tate and things of that nature, but that win over Marlis Kunin is one of the best wins on Misha Tate's resume, and that win over Marlis Kunin is one of the very best wins on Cyborg's resume. When you look at the girl Cyborg's beaten over the length of her career, Marlis Kunin is probably the best all-round athlete and best all-round martial artist on her resume. So that though, the fact that it's many, many times in Cyborg and Misha have fought, to think that at worst, Kunin is maybe number one, maybe number two in the biggest wins as far as the level of competition and experience, that says a lot because those two girls have faced the who's who of fighters in their their um, weight division. So I'd really like to see Marlos Kunin, who's coming, who should be coming to the close of her career, finish out with a with a major organization title. Julia Budd is another person. Um, she she's been in for a while. She's not kind of she's not the veteran that Marlos Kunin in, but Kunin is, but she's been representing the sport very well. I think she's on a is it a four or five win streak right now. She's just a tough, gritty fighter. She had some rough spots early on, and she's made some adjustments, and she's really improved. I feel like she's in better shape. I feel like she, her IQ's gotten better, and I feel like the range of skills she's using has greatly improved from the last time I've seen her fight. I mean, it's a good matchup. It's two. It's not two, two young, inexperienced fighters who have clear holes in their games. It's two seasoned veterans who know how to come in shape, who know how to prepare, who know how to prepare and who have a balanced skill set. So it should be a true MMA fight, and it should be fought on many different levels in many different areas, and it should be competitive because, like I said before, it's not like some of the fighters we have now who are great athletes and, and great fighters in their own right, but who have clear limitations that can be exploited by somebody who who has a little bit better sense of balance. Misha Tate wasn't always the very greatest striker. Holly Holm isn't the very greatest grappler. Ronda Rousey clearly isn't one of the better strikers. Amanda Nunes is dynamic as she is, has been suspect with her cardio and her ability to maintain fights. Valentina is a great striker, but her grappling and wrestling is a little suspect. Julia Pena, great grappler, wrestling and striking is a little suspect. So when you in this fight, you have two fighters who can fight on every single level and have developed skills and ex experience through competition and training in every level. So it should be a very even fight, and I, I think it should be one of the better fights on the card, if not the best fight on paper. Hmm, that's interesting. That's and it's interesting that you say it could be the best fight on paper. How does it compare to the UFC's um, main event this weekend with uh, Shevchenko and and Pena? The difference with Shevchenko and Pena is just a different. It's just a different level of athlete. I mean, Shevchenko is like a world class, world class, world class striker, and Pena, even though she's not, she was never like a world class wrestler, or world class grappler per se. As far as being world class in the world of MMA, she's clearly one of the better athletes. There's there's very few people who are who have her sense of balance, uh, strength, agility, and um, conditioning that she has. So she's just right there. Those two fighters athletically far exceed anything that Bud and Kunin have going for them. Plus, both of these girls are fairly young in their careers in MMA, so there's still there's there's that aspect of it. They don't have tons of wear and tear from the from the art from the training, and they they're they're learning the cutting edge stuff. So in a certain instance, the reason I said the Kunin versus Bud is such a good fight on paper is because you have people who've seen it all and faced the who's who of opponents in MMA. So they're really prepared for anything. They're prepared for arm bars. They're prepared for takedowns. They've 
they've trained for every aspect and they've had to face and beat people people from every discipline who attack from every angle. In the case of Pena and Valentina, they haven't always had to do that. Pena's competition, she, she's undefeated since she's been on the Ultimate Fighter. But the fact of the matter is, if you look really closely at the records of the girls she's fought, they're not great. They're actually terrible. The girl she fought for the title, for the tough title, she has a losing record. Um, the girl she fought, she fought in her first official UFC fight, has a losing record in the UFC. She doesn't. She hasn't beaten a lot of quality competition. She beat a lot of girls, but she hasn't beat a lot of good fighters. So yeah, the only one, the only one that's really, I'm not gonna say worth her weight. The only one that really kind of is a name is a Kat Zingano win. Yeah, and Kat Zingano was coming off of a loss in a how in what a year and a half outside of the cage. Mm-hmm. So I mean. Pena is put together a win streak, but it's like one of those Neil Magny win streaks where it looks really good, but when you look a little bit closer at who they're beating and what that person has accomplished before and after them, it, it, it doesn't carry as much weight. So Man, why are you taking shots at Neil Magny like that, dude? I mean, I like him, but I got to call it straight. I mean, he had nine nine wins, and uh, they don't they – don't his one win over Kelvin Gastelum essentially shuts down every other win he's had in the UFC. I mean, he just – that, that Johnny Hendricks win was probably the best win of his career. And Johnny Hendricks didn't look like the Johnny Hendricks he was when he was dominating the welterweight division. Neil Magny, he's a great guy, hard worker, professional, but let's let's not talk crazy. When people say contender and they say Magny, I start questioning their credentials and their ability to process fights. So you what about that win over Hector? Over Hector Lombard? Dude, that dude's got worse cardio than Amanda Nunes. You give him... Half a round, and he's done. If he don't knock you out in half a round, he is finished. That, that dude has terrible cardio. Worst cardio in combat sports. I, I, I feel strong in saying that. Outside of Amanda Nunes, no, nobody's cardio goes from 100% to 0% on the power bar faster than, than Hector Lombard. That, we, I'm, I'm pulling up Neil Magny's um, resume right now. We may have to argue uh, – when you look at the names of the guy he's beat on this streak, you're going to be like, I mean, they're good wins, but nothing to say the league. Nothing to say the league. Now, see, we're going to argue about what do you mean by elite. Yeah, I can get with you on that. I mean, he has quality wins. I think he has some quality wins. He has the win over Tim Means. Um, he has a Hector Lombard, the Kelvin Gastelum. Um, he has that win over uh, Johnny Hendricks, like you mentioned. I think that he, that, that Hyun Guy, Guy Lim win was a good one as well too because he was expected to lose that fight a lot of people thought he was gonna get knocked the fuck out and um he actually he actually re- 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 reversed that there so um yeah i, 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 I think it's, a, it's an interesting conversation but I, yeah i can see he, he is not an elite top 10 wins when, when, when you saw what lorenz larkin did to him lorenz larkin didn't do that to jorge jorge Masvidal. he didn't do that to anybody else he's facing welterweight or anybody else that he's facing in his career he walked through Bagney. And it was it wasn't even close. Magny had no answer for his athleticism. Magny's a great guy. He's tough, world class in his mind, world class in his ability to focus and prepare. He does not have world class technique on the feet or wrestling. He does not have world class grappling, and he does not he does not have world class athleticism. That's where it gets him. He doesn't have that game changer, that eraser, or that thing that can close the gap. When he faces guys with top end ability, you start seeing a lot of holes and see a lot of things happening to him that you're not used to seeing happen to him. I haven't seen Neil Magny out-wrestle until he fought Johnny Hendricks. He was clearly out-wrestled. I haven't seen him just crushed and dominated on the striking feet. He fought Renz Larkin. It wasn't even competitive. When he fought Gastelum, he jumped out to a lead 
and he hung on because Gaslam came on late, and Magny couldn't do anything to stop this guy late in the fight. I, I like him, but just based on what I see, I, I can't say he's a lead. And I, I don't think he's ever going to be a lead. I think this is pretty much the ceiling you have for him. And if any any top-end athlete is prepared for him and ready to give 100%, they're going to beat him the same way Larkin beat him. Okay, okay. You know, we got a little bit uh, a little bit derailed there, but I mean, I, I, I see your points. I definitely see your um, your point there. Let's let's focus back on UFC Fight Night 23. Um, a lot of people, Shevchenko's a favorite coming into this fight, and I, and I see why. Um, she's definitely the better fighter on her feet. I think she's better than Pena on the feet by a wider margin than Pena is better than her in the grappling department. And I think that's going to kind of showcase. I, I'm interested in seeing how Shevchenko's worked on her takedown defense. And um, I think this being, I'm interested in also seeing what her cardio is like because she did get tired in that fight against um, Nunez. She got tired in a way that she stopped putting her combinations together that would have helped her win. Um, so I'm really interested in seeing how, how this fight plays out over um, five rounds of action? Uh, I, I'm interested. The, the main concern for me, Pena's, she's big, strong, and she's physical. But Pena's, her striking, I don't even mind. She strikes really hard. She hits really hard. But her thing is, she's like a Jeremy Stevens. She hits hard because she throws so hard and commits herself to shots. But her shots aren't really sharp. Even on the pads, when I was watching Road to the Octagon, she's not a very, she's not a very, technical striker and she's not a very fluid one her shots are very forced and awkward and when she throws she throws so hard that she puts herself out of position when she misses and she throws wide you can beat her easy with a straight one two every single time if she throws a punch and you throw a punch at the same time you're going to beat her every time which is a shame given how fast she is and given how long she is that sort of thing shouldn't happen but she doesn't have very good footwork she doesn't have very good setups and she doesn't have very good entries which is another problem for her because a lot of girls are able to get in on her and maintain a range on her because she doesn't have a jab and she doesn't have a footwork to get in on girls. Every time she tries to get in on girls, they're able to tie her up or counter her. I saw Jessica I counter her on numerous nu- numerous opportunities. And Jessica I is not a big hitter. And Jessica I had her knees wobbling. And also, I've seen a lot of girls get in on her in clinches and, and tie her up and attempt takedowns. Kathleen Gana did it multiple times. So... The thing with Valentina, I feel, is Valentina's going to – I think she's going to get some takedowns on her. She's going to be able to use her footwork, and when and when Pena comes in hard, she's going to be able to get in there and do those quick trip or throw takedowns. Now, Pena has really good balance, and she usually recovers very well, but the fact of the matter is she shouldn't even be in those positions. As long as she is and as athletic as she is, she'll be able to maintain a distance, control a pace, control a distance, and set up her shots and takedowns and clinches the way she wants. But she doesn't have that dis- discipline, and she doesn't have that technique. She's just too wild. Um, she has a size advantage, and she has a strength advantage, but everybody who's fought Valentina has had a size and strength advantage over her, and that's that's never cost her any fights. Kaufman had a size and strength advantage over her. She outworked Kaufman and won a decision. Nunez beat her, but at the end of that fight, Nunez was just hanging on. Nunez really didn't yeah. have anything for her. And, and you saw what she did to Holly Holm, and Holly Holm actually has good footwork and good sense of distance. So my question for Pena is, yeah, she's a better grappler, but is she going to be able to navigate the strikes and navigate the distance well enough to get, get Valentina into a position where she can take her down safely and control her without A, getting taken down herself, or B, getting countered on her entries? Because Valentina knows how to pivot. She knows how to fake. She knows how to draw you in, bait you in. And then, and then throw a straight right hand or throw a leg kick or throw a knee straight down the pipe to counter you. 
and Pena hasn't faced anybody with a layered offense and a layered defense on the feet. And if you have good a good layered defense on the feet, the wrestling and the grappling becomes very hard to enact. An example was Daniel Maya. Everybody talks about his grappling. His grappling has become more effective because he's able to pressure people with correct footwork. Julia Pena does not have correct footwork. She does not have correct delivery of punches or, or defense from punches. That's going to make it very hard to get the clean takedowns you want or the clean takedown attempts you want without you getting busted up. And that's what I see happening. I see Pena, I see Pena getting picked apart and countered because she's all aggression and Valentina is all counters. And if you chase her, she's the kind of girl who likes to pick her shots and be, and be efficient. But if you force her into a firefight, she's like Jose Aldo. She'll ramp it up, but you have to come after her continuously. And Pena, from what I've seen, doesn't have the skills to do anything else but keep on pressuring, keep on swinging, keep on trying to get her up against the cage, keep on trying to get her down, and keep on trying to rough her up. That's the only option she has based on what I've seen from her in fights. And she hasn't improved a whole hell of a lot from what I've seen from when she came out of tough to now she's gotten a little bit better, but nothing dramatic that says she's going to beat this girl any way in, in any way that I can predict. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see. I, I'm, I've always been a fan of, you know, it's difficult to point out a way someone's going to lose a fight if that individual has never lost a fight like that in the past. So I could definitely agree with you. I, I see that this being a difficult fight for Pena to win. I think she may win rounds, but I don't think she's going to be able to do enough to kind of win this whole fight here. Um, she's five rounds before either. I, yeah, she hasn't. Pena has, right? Oh, excuse me, not Pena. Um, Shevchenko with five rounds with home, didn't she? Yeah, so I mean, she might come out. It's different when you have three rounds because you can lose a round and then, or come out and you you win one round and you can kind of make through the second one and you can dictate. As I remember, Valentina started coming on halfway through the late in the first round and essentially pulled away as the fight got later and later. We have no idea what Pena is going to do do in an active competitive fight in five rounds. We have no idea. She might be great. She could be terrible. But people who have who lunge when they throw shots and throw off balance and throw wide usually don't get sharper when they get tired. And people who are easy to take down and easy to counter when they're fresh, usually get easier to counter and easier to take down when they get tired. I mean, and we've seen we've seen Valentina take down better grappler and a bitter, bigger athlete and take shots from a better striker and a bigger athlete in Nunes. So essentially she should be able to handle anything that Pena throws at her. We don't know that Pena can handle what Valentina's going to fire back because she's never been in a position against an opponent who can really punish her for her mistakes. Zingano's terrible on the feet, and she gasses quick. Uh, the other girl, she beat Rakowski, is a good striker, but she has no grappling game, and she's kind of one-dimensional in how she strikes. And then beating Jessica I, as athletic as Jessica I is, Jessica I won't actively counter. She'll make you miss, but she won't make you pay. She won't force a pace. She won't engage you at the highest level in a tit-for-tat battle. She'll kind of give you ground. She'll give you spots to work in. Valentina's like not like that. You push your pace on her, she's going to make you pay for it. And I think that's what's going to happen. Pena's going to try to push the pace. Pena's going to come to put on a show and put her away. And she's going to end up, it's going to end up backfiring her because I don't think she has the depth, the skill to do that. If she does, I'll give her all the credit. But based on what I've seen, even recently, I don't see how she wins this fight. How does she finish? She can't control her for five rounds. That's not going to happen. So, so then what did it come down to? I mean, I'm looking at um, Pena's uh, recent productivity. And I mean, she she's only fought, she only fought once last year. 
Yeah. She only fought once last year. And I've always kind of, you know, I'm the the least, the, the more, excuse me, the more inactive you are, the less of a chance I had, the, the less of a chance I see you winning a, a major fight, especially a five-round fight. Um, I think it's important for fighters to stay active. And that, and that, and that kind of is, is alarming to me. And she's been, that, she's, she's been out for so long. And she's been active and she's been inactive and also inactive against, and, and when she has fought, it's been against a low level of athlete where she's clearly superior athlete and clearly the superior fighter. Against Valentina, there's no guarantee that she's not the better striker. She's not necessarily the better athlete. We don't know that she's a better fighter. Based on who they've beaten, Valentina and her two wins is a much better fighter because her two wins literally destroys any other win that um, Pena has on her resume. Those two, a win over Holly Holm and Sarah Kaufman is worth more than anything Pena's done. That's better than her Katz and Ghana win. That, that means almost nothing at this stage. Yeah, I can definitely um, I can definitely uh, agree with you there. Um, do you think the winner of this fight gets a title shot? Um, well, Pena is going to demand one, and I think she should get one if she wins. And I think I think both her and Valentina have a legitimate argument. If Pena wins, she'll have won her two biggest name fights in a row: Zingano, then Valentina, and then she has her tough title, and she's been on this win streak. So essentially, there's nothing else more she could do. If Valentina wins. She's already pushed the champion to the brink. She beat a ranked person in her first fight. She beat the former champion in her in her uh, in her uh, second fight, and then she also she beat the former cha- she beat the former champion in this fight, and then she would have beat a top five contender in her what fourth fight in the bantamweight division. I mean, how else how else could you deny her a shot after beating home Kaufman? Pena, and then giving Nunes the toughest fight she's had in the past two years, because Nunes walked through Misha Tate, Nunes walked through Rousey, Nunes did not walk through Valentina, and Valentina actually could probably fight a weight class below her, and she gave her the toughest fight she's had in years. So how can you not give her a rematch? It's already, it's already built up. It's two strikers. It's already built up. The first fight was exciting. How can you deny either one of them if they win this fight? Who else is, who else is a better option for a title fight? For a title fight? After these two, um, after these two, I mean, or, or in front of these two, who would you pick? Oh, in front of these two, I wouldn't put anyone in front of these two at all. Yeah, I mean that, that's how I look at it, and, and I think if Valentina wins this fight, I think she beats Nunes. Nunes talks about being the next featherweight champion. If she has a defended title against Valentina, she ain't gonna be that, so she don't have to worry about that. And, um, yeah, I, I think that this is going to be interesting to see what comes out of this. I think it kind of writes itself. So, and Nunez is trying to lay the groundwork of challenging for the women's featherweight title when that one is defended uh, or that one is created. And, um, yeah, I'm just not a fan of that idea at all. She's just a fan. She just wants to get paid. I can't hate on her. She she wants to get paid. and I. Yeah, I, I can't I, hate I, on that either. I, I understand it, but, I mean – it, all I can all I can say once again is she should thank the UFC for ignoring her because in her entire tenure in the UFC I've never heard a word from this woman and now since the UFC put her second to Ronda Rousey which she should have been as a star she will not shut up and I'm a fan of it but she should thank them because before they did that she wasn't doing herself any favors with her I just want to fight and I want to put on a good fight and represent my country well nobody cared nobody wanted to hear it ever since they dissed her for Rousey she's talking trash she's saying she's going to F everybody up. She wants both belts at the same time. Now she's getting attention. 
Now she's making some making a name for herself, and now she's making headway in the media, all because the UFC ignored her. So imagine what would happen if they would have been nice to her with the same tired act we've been getting for her for the past four or five years. So thank you, UFC, for ignoring her. Now we've got a champion and a fighter that we actually give a damn about because before we didn't care. We did not care. Yeah, and I, and I love the way she's um, speaking out now um, because – I yes, she was not the she's not the star of she wasn't the star of that fight against um, Ronda Rousey, but she still didn't deserve that disservice of barely being featured in um, the, the, the promotion at all. I think that that was a um, a problem within it within its own right. But I definitely agree with you there. Um, and now and now we do definitely now we do care about her much more than we did before the fight because she's pissed, and I like a fighter that that that's that's pissed. Before we move on, I need and I, I like Nunes. She's a great fighter. I, I picked against her two times in a row, but I, I still appreciate what she brings to the table. I like that she's getting some success. But I have to call her out on one thing. She says all the people Ronda fought were fakes and weren't any good and weren't on her level. Two of the people Ronda beat in seconds beat you. You can't say the people she fought were garbage when they beat you. If two garbage, if two girls who are hot garbage. Are all the girls Ronda beat were heart garbage? What does that make you? Because you lost the two girls that she dominated. You can't say that. Fighters have this like fake memory that kind of comes and goes to fit their narrative. I didn't forget. I didn't forget the Cat Zagano beat you within an inch of your life, and Ronda finished her within a minute. So don't tell me that everybody Ronda beat was a sham and was and Ronda was made up and she's a media creation. She's a media creation. How does she ice the girl? in 60 seconds, who beat you to the point the ref had to pull her off of you. How did that happen? And that's after you gave her your best shot. You gave her everything you have. She came back and beat you with an inch of your life. But everybody Ronda beat is hot garbage? I guess. I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I guess. <laughs> I'm just, I, I mean, you can't argue. These are facts. There's a fight record. She lost to two people that Ronda crushed. But all Ronda's opponents are garbage. What does that make Amanda Nunes? What who's the two people? Is Cassie Gano? Who's the other? Uh, Jessica DeLo, I think is her name. Is this is so, so. This is so. This is an old old fight. Yeah, no, one of them was a fairly old fight, and and trust me, some of her fans got on me on Twitter. That was an old fight. Hey, look, she brought it up. I didn't bring <laughs> this up. She made this argument. Years from now, her fight over Ronda is going to be old. Is she going to want me to discount that? Four years from now, can I discount her Ronda win? No, True. okay. Well, don't discount your losses, cause she. I, I guarantee you, she's not taking back any of those wins she had from four years ago. All those are legitimate, but the but the losses she had, those don't count, cause she was a different fighter then. Okay, all right. So the losses don't count, cause you're a different fighter, but all the wins they count, even though you're a different fighter now. <laughs> I'm just saying that logic does saying. not make sense. Just got It's funny because oftentimes people don't like to play in the realm of logic and um you know that's 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 unfortunate for that's them all we do when they... the show. I, I need to tell everybody that's what we do on the show we like fighters Raphael's the martial artist he helps fighters he trains himself he's competed i've helped fighters train i've never fought myself so i'm not going to even give myself that respect but i'm a fan of fighters i've seen well but on the show there will be no bending of the facts and, and rewriting of the history we don't do that around here maybe other people will do that on their show and kind of tap dance for you and we don't do that we will not be doing that sir we will be calling it straight down the line if she was a guest on that show i'd be like you said her fighter her, her opponents are overrated two of them beat you what's your response well i was a different fighter then 
So if we're taking those losses off, why don't we take all those wins off? Well, those wins were legitimate. How are they more legitimate than your two losses? I would ask her that question directly because we only deal in logic here. We like who we like, but we deal in logic here. We deal in facts. We'll give everybody their due credit, but we ain't, we're not changing history to fit your agenda. That's not how this show works here. We are definitely dealing in facts, sir. Speaking of facts, there are a, no, there are a number of other good fights on this card. Um, Donald Cerrone, Jorge Masvidal, you wrote a piece about that for um, this week, and you said it's going to get real. I definitely think it's going to get real, too, because this is a like I and a lot of Donald Cerrone fights, you see guys who can't necessarily match his technique in, in, in striking. Like, I look back to that combination that he destroyed Rick Story with. You, you see tough matchups, but you don't see anyone that can really match his striking game through and through. In my opinion, Jorge Masvidal can if he shows up and works for the whole 15 minutes. I always get pissed because I think of Jorge Masvidal in that fight against Al Iaquinta that he should have won, but he kept his foot off the gas and he cost himself. So um, what do you think about this fight and how is it going to go down? I'm just glad that I'm a bit, I'm a fan. Once again, I'm a fan of all these fighters. Don't take my harshness as having something against them personally. I just got to call it straight down the line. Donald Cerrone has beaten up some good guys at welterweight, but all these dudes had clear lines to victory. Patrick Cote, they're like, oh, that's a dangerous fight because he's big and tough. He's a big, tough, old, slow guy. When has that ever been enough to beat Donald Cerrone? Never. Alex Oliveira was athletic, but couldn't grab, couldn't really wrestle and couldn't really grapple. When is a guy who can't wrestle and can't grapple ever beaten Donald Cerrone? Never. Rick Story, a guy who's a good wrestler, had, had not really good boxing. Everybody says he's good, but he's good body punching. His boxing isn't particularly great. But he's a bit of a head case, and there's no consistency in his training, as you can tell, because he constantly switches camps, and he doesn't show the highest IQ in the cage. Once again, he was on a three, like a two or three fight winning streak coming into that fight, and he left the camp that got his career back on track before the biggest fight of his career. That shows you where his mind was at. When is the guy who's been inconsistent and is a bit of a head case and shows poor IQ ever beaten Donald Cerrone? I'll tell you, never. Matt Brown. Season guy, a tough guy, but a technically and physically, he's not a top-end athlete. He's physically limited. He's not a great striker. He's great in the clinch. He's not great anywhere else, and he's only great going forward. The minute you stop his forward progression, the minute you push him back, he's done. When is a not when is the average athlete and an average overall striker with shoddy defense and suspect durability ever beaten Donald Cerrone? I will tell you once again, it's the same answer as the other times. Never. All the guys who've beaten Donald Cerrone have been closer to the top end athletes, have had have had skills across the board, wrestling, a little bit of submission, striking. They've been very durable and they've shown to be quick thinking on their feet. Rafael Desanos, even Jamie Varner, Anthony Pettis, Benson Henderson. Do any of these guys do do the words slow or poor IQ or not durable or one dimensional pop up in, in the description of any of these guys? In your opinion? Um, no, I can agree with you on that. No. So once again, he's beating up a bunch of guys who have who are clear limitations, clear hard ceilings on where they're at. He's just he's a better he's faced better competition at lightweight than he has at welterweight. The guys at lightweight, skill for skill that he's lost to, and the guys he's beat are better than all the guys he's beaten at welterweight. Against Masvidal, he finally is facing a guy who he's not going to have a clear line to victory. Masvidal can wrestle. 
He's, he can wrestle. He's, he's controlled guys on the ground and grounded and pounded them. He's won fights by submission against guys who were good submission guys. He's boxed people up. He's boxing with the better strikers up. He's got a good enough chin where he went three rounds of Lorenz Larkin. Lorenz, you know, Lorenz Larkin has like the fastest hands at welterweight, and Lorenz Larkin only throws heat. He, he went rounds with him. He's shown himself to be durable. He's shown himself to be smart. He's shown himself to be versatile. And he's got more, the only person who's got more experience and fought in more organizations than him is Eddie Alvarez. That's the kind of guy Jorge, Jorge Masvidal is. The only thing you have to wonder about is, is he going to start winning the fight and then cruise? Because he has this tendency to, to, win a, to win a fight, and then he started thinking, I haven't won. And then he just starts, you know, sliding and slipping and parrying and, and rolling with punches and occasionally doing two or three shots every couple minutes because he figures, I've already won the fight, so I'm just going to show how much better I am by not doing anything, by, by highlighting this fact, by not doing anything and just cruising. Worry about, but as far as the technical and strategical skill set, it's dead even between them. People aren't going to say that because Donald Cerrone is the star of the UFC. But if you put them skill for skill and experience for experience, uh, Mastodal's level of competition is just as good, if not better. His level of experience is much better. His level of skill is comparable, if not better, than Donald Cerrone. For once, since he's been in welterweight, he's going to have to fight a guy who can fight him on every single front he has. I guarantee you this much. I'll tell you one thing that's not going to happen. Donald Cerrone has outboxed a couple guys. He ain't outboxing Jorge Masvidal. That ain't happening. That dude's one of the top five boxers in MMA. That ain't happening. He ain't boxing him up. I will guarantee you that right. If that happens, I don't know what I might do. I might have to run out into the street in traffic. But Say I that again. Who's not boxing up who? I said Donald Cerrone isn't, isn't boxing up Jorge Masvidal. That's not happening. He, he boxed up Rick Story a little bit. He boxed up Cote. He boxed up Matt Brown. Those guys can't box. They can punch. Jorge Masvidal can box. He's got a jab. He's got defense. He's got a footwork. He's not going to be running him over. He's not going to be scoring highlight kicks left and right. That's not going to happen. Donald Cerrone is going to get hands put on him, and Donald Cerrone is going to be in the first real fight he's been in in over a year and a half because these other guys haven't been really good challenges to him. They've been a little bit tough. They've been able to put him in a couple spots, but nobody had the skills and the experience and the toughness to maintain that. None of them. Jorge Masvidal has it all. And if Donald Cerrone wants to win and he wants to be legitimate welterweight, he's going to have to fight this time. He's not going to get a showcase. Rick Story, showcase. Cote, showcase. Alex Oliveira, showcase. There ain't going to be no showcase in this fight. He's going to have to fight to get this one. And it's it, it makes sense because he's fighting another former lightweight where in that division he had to fight to get his wins too. So now he's going to have to get back to business Really buckle down. I hope he's healthy. I hope he's sharp because he's going to have to fight this time. No easy passes, no fancy highlights and the Super Saiyan treatment of the, the replay of the knockout. That, that ain't happening this time. He's going to have to fight. So who are you picking then? I'm really thinking – I think I might go with Masvidal this time. I, I think mentally – I think this is the kind of fight he, get, he engages in. There's been trash talk. There's been back and forth. And um, he, likes, he likes to attack the body. He likes to attack the body a lot. I'll tell you this much. If he doesn't throw that left hook to the body with the right hand over the top, I'm going to know that him or his coaches do not watch film because that lands on Donald Cerrone so much, it is sickening that a professional fighter gets hit with the same combination so many times. If he don't throw that punch, I'm going to wonder about his camp. But I still think he should win. He can meet him on every single level. And actually, he, to me, he's the more physically durable guy. Only the question I have is, Two questions I have is, B, is he going to check out if he starts winning and putting it on him? Is he going to start checking out and dancing around and cruising again? 
and C, he's had a lot, a lot of fights, not just a little bit. He's had a lot of fights over his career against a very high level of competition. Is this the night he grows old overnight? I don't think it's going to happen. But when you have that many fights, like four, almost 50 fights, you never know when the night is going to be when you, you can't pull the trigger, when your chin doesn't take the shot the same way it used to. And he fights pretty often, too. So um, I'm going to go with Jorge Masvidal. I, I think this is his time. I think he really wanted this fight. And I don't think he's going to be given any ground to it. I think he, he knows what to stay for him because he loses this fight. Um, he's got a losing record at welterweight. And he's essentially out of the mix for any elite, any title shots or any elite contendership in the near future. He's going to have to win at least two or three to get, get back in a position. And that's hard to do. He asked for this fight because... He needed a name fight. He needed a money fight. He needed a fight that could make a difference in his career. He got it. So if he doesn't win it, he's going to have to answer some questions because he's been talking a whole lot, a whole lot. That's what he does. He talks a lot. So this is a chance to really separate himself and show us that he's the fighter that I think he is and the fighter he's been telling us he is for the past, I don't know, however many years he's been fighting. He's always been telling us he's better than these guys. He's like a, an honorary Diaz with the shit he talks about other fighters in comparison to his own skills. Okay, okay, yeah, so you just made me more excited for this fight than I actually originally was, so I appreciate that, sir. Um, I was already looking forward to that fight, and I'm looking forward to some others on, on this fight as well, too. We'll get to the Andre Ar Arlovsky fight, but I'm interested in the Rafael Sanso, um Aljamain Sterling bout. Let's talk about that. I want to talk about Alex Caceres and then the um, Andre Arlovsky fight. But um, uh, Sun Sound versus Sterling, I just wrote about that um, for the uh, site today. And I think that it's going to be a great fight. I want Ster I believe Sterling is going to win this. He's the underdog right now, but um, I think that he can match a lot of the things that Sun Sal brings to the ring, to, to the cage, but he also has a level of dynamic um, abilities that Sun Sal does not have. I, I after that loss to um, Caraway, I have my concerns about Aljamain. He's like a top-end athlete. He's got really good grappling, and uh, his wrestling is good. His grappling, transition, submission, counter-grappling is, is excellent. But his striking is so limited. He's, he's only effective at a long range. When a guy can navigate a range and get past his kicks or faint him and get the hands on him, his whole, his, his, his whole thing falls apart. Like His boxing, from what I've seen – I don't. I can't say it's terrible. It just. It's just not very good. It's very limited. He doesn't put combinations together. He doesn't seem to throw with real bad intentions. His placement on his shots doesn't seem great, and he doesn't seem very willing to actually pay to be defensively responsible in his boxing or offensively active in his boxing. It's like there's this whole range that he can feed to people. If he can't keep you out and kind of get in the way he wants and take you down and and. and control the pace of the fight and control where the fight happens it's like he doesn't have any consistent line of defense outside of those long front kicks high kicks low kicks and all those kind of kicks. he doesn't have a medium game and if you can pressure him and get past those those kicks essentially there's not much else left to him and i think asuncio is going to be able to do that asuncio has still fought the better competition i don't know that aljamain sterling is going to be able to to out grapple him asuncio is a very Season and experienced fighter, much like Haraway is, and except a Sunsau's got a little bit more of a mean streak, and a Sunsau's a more powerful striker on the feet, and a little bit more layered as a striker on the feet too. I I actually expect a Sunsau to win. I mean, he he didn't look bad against Dillashaw, and that's after he literally rolled off the couch, but a year and a half coming off an injury, and then he he 
he gave Dillashaw a, a pretty good fight. Dillashaw looked better against Morale and looked better against Lineker than he looked against the Sunsau. The Sunsau was a closer fight than people made it out to be. He was countering him. He was defending takedowns. He was he was landing leads. He was defending a lot of shots. Um, that wasn't one of Dillashaw's better performances. That wasn't worthy of a title shot performance. And Asuncao did that while resting. He's sharp. Aljamain Sterling is the one who hasn't fought in a while. And unless he's made some severe changes to his game as far as strengthening that mid-range and in-close position, I don't see how he wins this fight. He's got the grappling and the wrestling too, but he doesn't have the striking that works as a layer of defense or as a transition into the strike into the grappling that's going to allow him to get those clean takedowns and uh, get in the safe positions where he can work submissions. I don't think he wins this fight at all. I'd like to see him fight. I'm a fan of his character and, I, and his ambition, but I don't think he wins this fight. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I I hope that you're, I mean, I, I, I wish, for, like I said, I want Sterling to kind of emerge into a contender for my own personal reasons. I think he just has an ability to grow into that role. Um, but he did, he did show some holes in his game that you kind of pointed out that should be a concern to, um, his camp and, um, guys like, uh, me. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, He's got the he's got the athletic ability. He's like a John Jones. If John Jones had a huge hole in his in his overall fighting ability, part of what makes John Jones win effective is that once you get past those kicks in that long range, John Jones can throw. He he can box a little bit, and he's got those elbows. You can't. There's really no range you're safe at him. It's safe with him. That's why he can constantly keep people off balance, get those takedowns, to force into the fence, and to create those offensive bursts. Aljamain doesn't have a medium or inside game. So once you get past the kicks, he can't just muscle you down because everybody at that weight class is a pretty good athlete. And a lot of the guys in those weight class are good wrestlers, if not world-class grapplers. So you're not just going to be walking over people, not the, not the best guys. And all the guys Sterling was handling, they weren't top five type guys. They were like top, low top 10, top 12, stuff like that. I mean, Mizugaki's a tough, strong guy, but he's nobody's world-class grappler. He's nobody's defensive wrestler. He's nobody's defensive or counter-grappler. Counter He's like a big-time guy with some decent ground skills. And all the other guys he beat were some pretty good wrestlers with some good ground skills. He wasn't beating guys with tenure and experience in MMA and in grappling. And in facing his thumbs out, he's facing a guy who has fought more recently than him, fought a better level of competition than him, and, ha and even in his area of strength, is comparable, if not better than him in his area of strength, and is definitely better on the feet. In, in my opinion, the striking is not even close between them. Yeah, I can definitely um, agree with you on that. There, uh, man, we 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 had a pretty good conversation about all these uh, all these fights tonight. We're not even done, man. Talk to me about Arlovsky and um, Francis in in Nagano. Um, a lot of people are talking about this being an opportunity for Francis to have a big night, and you um you wrote about this as well. Um, tell me, I'm not too familiar with Francis. I feel like I've seen him fight before, but it's just kind of really not ringing a bell right now so um talk to me about that what are what are what are your thoughts about this um heavyweight fight if i recall correctly, i think adam did a part a piece on francis and gano i think that's how they say it yeah adam did yeah and and it was very it was excellent piece um i just want to clarify because like to make sure all my all the guys on my team you michael adam get their props when the props are deserved i'm giving them out so i want to make sure all you guys are represented but um his athleticism, it's its what stands out. He's like, in heavyweight, the athleticism isn't 
constantly there. Kane Velasquez isn't a great athlete. Josh Barnett was never a great athlete. Um, clearly, Roy Nelson isn't. Um, but Engano has this special athleticism with his size, his power, his agility, and he seems to be a sponge. He seems to just soak up things very quickly and be able to put them into action very, you know, as soon as he gets them. He learns this in camp. The next thing you know, he's finishing with it in a fight. He's shown some poise. He's shown some maturity. He's shown some discipline in his fight. The only reason I have a concern for him is he hasn't really faced the guy who's been even close to his level of athleticism or in experience enough where they know how to deal with his athleticism and how to take things away from a guy like him. A guy like him is used to coming in and doing what he wants to do. And then since he's been in the UFC, he's essentially come in and done what he's wanted to do with guys. He's just been too athletic. He's hit too hard. He's been too fast. He's been too dynamic. And, and he might be, he might be those things for Andre Arvlosky too, but Arvlosky's faced top end athletes. Travis Brown while probably not as explosive as Njuani, he's he's comparable. He's long. He's active. He's agile. The, the Travis Brown who fought Andre Alarski still had some of that Greg Jackson kind of energy in him. It was still creative and dynamic and awkward. So Arvlosky's dealt with that. Arvlosky fought Anthony Johnson. And while Anthony Johnson isn't a legit heavyweight as it stands, he's still one of the hardest hitting guys. And Compared to most heavyweights, he's excessively fast. He's fast at light heavyweight, which means he's fast, fast at heavyweight. So Arvlovsky is used to dealing with explosive, powerful guys who come to end fights and come who come with big power. I think he's, I think he should be ready for what Francis has to offer, and I think his plan should be to try to extend him, not try to get into a firefight immediately. Try to make the young man work. Try to see what happens if he doesn't get that quick finish or he doesn't get that money shot off in the first fight. First round, first round, or first couple minutes, and I think he should try to extend the difference, the distance, work the angles, work pivots, and attack the body. Front kicks, kicks to the body, kicks to the leg. Essentially, what Alan Joban did to Mike Perry is what Andre Arvlovsky's game plan should be against Francis in this fight. But once again, the question comes down to: Can Arvlovsky's chin hold up? And I mean, he got stopped by Stepe. Stepe. And Stipe is not a big puncher. I'm sorry. He's a great fighter. He puts a lot of volume. He can hit hard, respectfully, for heavyweight. He's nobody's big puncher. And he got he got iced by him in one shot. He got iced by Overeem. He got rocked by Travis Brown when they fought. I mean, he's just been a guy whose chin has been less than reliable, even against guys who aren't known to be KO, KO punchers in the heavyweight division. And when you're facing a guy as fast and dynamic as Francis, you're going to have some rough spots. Even if you're able to put some work in, you're going to have some rough spots. You're going to get hit with some clean shots. And not only does Arvasi not take a good shot, he doesn't recover well either. He gets hit and is essentially downhill from that as soon as he takes a big shot. And um, I could very well see this fight going. I, I kind of see the fight going this way. I want to pick Arvasi, but it's hard to pick a guy who has shown such poor punch resistance recently. You know, if he could take, if he could take, take the shot, I'd go with him all over because on paper, it's not even a competition as far as actual skills shown, level of opposition, level experience, and ability to work out a bad position. Francis hasn't shown, shown us little to nothing. Arvlosky's shown us a lot, but Arvlosky has just been KO'd so many times and cleanly KO'd by guys who I don't think are as athletic or hit as hard as Francis does. And so it's going to be hard for me to pick anybody except him. 
I think I think Arvlowski is a very live dog. I think there's some clear avenues to winning the fight. Extend the range, move, keep him turning, don't let him set his feet, pick away with him, extend him, drag him out to the deep water, and then in the late in the round, try to drown him. But the question is, when those rough spots occur, when he gets hit with that big shot, which is going to happen at one point or another, what's he going to do? Is he going to be able to recover? And, and the last four or five fights he's had, the answer is no. And so I've got to go with what I've seen. And what I've seen is Andre repeatedly getting knocked out the first time he takes a really clean shot. Or even when he takes glancing ones, he gets kind of hurt. And he, he takes a step back. And that's not the kind of thing you do with a young contender with that kind of athleticism and that kind of aggression. If um... – if he does get the if Francis get the gets the win on Saturday, what do you expect the UFC to do with him next? Um, I would probably I wouldn't I'd still think they should move him slow. This this fight with uh Arvosky is a calculated risk because he's a guy who has the ability to hurt him, physical skills and the technical skills to hurt him, but a guy who's so vulnerable himself that that uh, Francis should be able to turn the fight around if it gets too competitive or gets too tight. He's always got the power against a guy that who's got that durability. I would like to see him fight maybe somebody like a uh, Walt Harris. Walt Harris is another is a young, athletic guy. He's he lost two fights in UFC, but he's come back and shown some improvements. And so once he's if he beats Arvlovsky, he's beaten a name. He's beaten an experienced guy. Now let's see how he handles a guy who may not be as experienced, but a guy who's got comparable athleticism and a little bit of seasoning and see how he does with that. Because Walt Harris isn't a top-end heavyweight either, but he's a guy who's, once again, showed some poise and maturity and coming back from losses and shown technical and emotional and mental improvement as far as his poise and maturity in the cage. So I think the next fight I'd have him go is against Walt Harris because Walt Harris has losses in the UFC, so it's not another young undefeated contender you're putting up up against, but it's also a guy who's going to answer some questions as to how does – Francis respond when somebody's putting some heat on him? How does he respond when the athlete, the gap in athleticism isn't from one end of the room to the other? The, the gap of athleticism is from my pointer finger to my thumb. Some guys, when they don't have that clear, clear advantage, they're not as great as they, they look. And I'd like to find that out about him. I don't know that I'm going to find that out this Saturday. But if he gets past Arvosti, I would definitely put him in with Harris next. Okay, okay. All right. So um, let's talk about one other guy on this card here. Alex Caceres is fighting against um, Jason Knight. Um, yeah, talk to me about Alex Caceres because he's someone that shows flashes and then takes a step backward step. Shows flashes, then takes a backward step. What do you expect to see from him on uh, Saturday? Uh, Jason, Jason, I mean, excuse me, Alex Caceres, He's like a he's like a version, uh, a, like a maybe a less dynamic version of Yair Rodriguez. If you think about it, a lot of unorthodox kicks and setups and execution. Athletic guys, um, pretty durable. Like to fight at an interesting pace and, and like to take a different approach to the MMA game. Uh, Caceres is really his his worst enemy. He, he just seems to not always. He has a full range of skills. He has a good physical physical tool set but it's like mentally he hasn't progressed past a certain point when he was fighting Yari Rodriguez he had a guy who was giving him clear opportunities to win that fight and he just refused to do the things necessary to win it I'm not even gonna say that Yari took things away from him because Yari was still throwing these ridiculous spinning kicks over and over and and Caceres was giving him space to throw him he was backing off he wasn't putting any pressure on him he wouldn't put combinations together on him 
he wasn't actively working for takedowns or control against the fence to to try, to, to kind of rough him up and score some points. It, it's it's just like he gets so involved in enjoying the fight and the experience of the fight that he forgets that he's supposed to be actively trying to win the fight. And as a result, he's had guys who are smaller than him, guys who are lesser athletes than him, give him losses and, and give him competitive fights that really that necessarily shouldn't have been competitive. And I think that's the one thing that's always going to keep him from being elite is just the mental aspect of the game. He can't put it all together. He does it in he's like he's like many fighters in that instance. He puts it together in flashes, but he can't ever put it together for three hard rounds. And that's what's always gotten him beat. Every time he's gotten past a certain level, he's like Neil Magny in a sense. Except Neil Neil Magny is a more disciplined and professional guy. He does about his business and, and he only gets beat by guys who are much better than him. Alex Caceres He's just not, in my opinion, he's not always locked into the moment and he's not always locked into doing what he needs to do to win fights. He starts doing what he wants to do and what he likes to do and not what he needs to do. And in life, if you do what you want to do instead of what you need to do, you fail in life. And as a fighter, when you do what you want to do instead of what you need to do, you you fail. Your goal is to be higher ranked or to win titles. And that's exactly what happens to him. He faces 12 unranked guys or guys from 15 to 13 or 12. He's fine. He starts getting a little bit higher than it. And it's like he, he he cracks and he starts fighting dumb and he starts not countering and he starts not putting pressure on. And he starts giving people rounds and starts giving people space and he starts fighting at a lower space and he stops putting combinations together. It's like the only thing that changes is the opponent and mentally he can't handle it and he starts performing poorly in those situations. Okay. Okay. I could definitely see that breakdown. And I've seen that in the past. So, you know, we've talked about him and how he's kind of, gone in and out before. So yeah, I, I can definitely see your concern there. Um do you think he pulls out a win on Saturday? I don't think so. I think Jason Knight's the the more uh, committed, the more focused guy. And if if Caceres is still with the lab, they did a lot for him. They kinda got him on track again. But I, I just think Jason Knight's the more de- from what I've seen, he seems to be the more dependable guy. And that's what it comes down to me a lot of time. A lot of people talk about when they talk about making picks, it's all about, well, this skill, and this person's better in this area, and this person's better in this area. I, I, I notice that stuff. I'm aware of that kind of stuff. But there's lots of fights we've seen where somebody has had a better skill set and not performed to the full extent of their abilities because somebody got in their head, because they got in their mind they had to fight a certain way, or because they were trying to prove a point in the fight. That costs guys who are better fighters fights all the time. You could easily submit this guy, but instead you want to prove that you can stand with them and then get knocked out. Or you're a seasoned fighter, but because somebody got in your head, you don't go. For the, you don't go for the finished submission. You start pounding on them, or you go for a stupid submission because you're so eager to get the fight over. Who, your mental state and your ability to focus and your ability to fight smart and be disciplined is a, is what separates truly great fighters from the also rams. It's not just the skills and the physical talent. It's the ability to execute under duress. It's the ability. To be consistent in your performance regardless of who you're facing. I've never seen that from Alex Caceres. In fact, usually when he starts facing guys who are on their way up and are trying to prove a point and make their mark is when he usually starts faltering. So I'm going to go with Jason Knight just based off the fact that I think he really is more keyed in, and I think he's he's, he's just a little bit more dedicated to his craft, and not just the individual arts, but, but uh, executing in the cage and doing what it takes to win fights. Okay, I'm, I'm not okay. Okay, I can definitely appreciate that breakdown. Breakdown there, um, you definitely have some good insight on that. Um, man, we've talked a lot about these fights um, coming up this weekend. 
uh, I had some news bits um, that I wanted to talk about. I definitely want to talk about Tyron Woodley's comments. I know you've seen a lot about it over the last few days. Um, let's touch upon that. We'll leave the other um, news for some other day, but let's talk about Tyron, Tyron Woodley. Um, what are your thoughts on his comments from ESPN and also on the MMA Hour on Monday? Well, I've talked a lot of people. A lot of people actually on Twitter are. A lot of people have been talking about the whole race aspect that he's brought up, and the thing that I've routinely said before, and I've said this with Floyd Mayweather, I've said this with everybody who's who's a fighter who brings race into the issue. Depending on who you are and how you are, race can be the only issue. But I don't think race is the only issue. I think race is an issue, but I don't think it's an issue in the way that everybody else makes it out to be. And I don't think it's the only issue with Tyrone Woodley. Tyrone Woodley doesn't really connect with fans. Fans don't feel a connection to him. Fans aren't invested in him. Fans don't necessarily like him as a character. And to be quite honest, he doesn't, He like we've talked about him before, he's very professional. He's a family man. He's, he's very close to the vet. He's not outlandish. He doesn't put on a character. He doesn't put on a show. He just wants to be himself, establish his legacy, make some money, provide for his family, and compete as a professional. And that's great. That's wonderful. That's a great example to set for other people. But that's not going to get you by. That's not going to evoke emotion in fans. And it never has. Andre Ward is the same way. Nobody cares about Andre Ward. He's one of the, he's the best pound-for-pound pound boxer, number two at worst in the world. He's been, he's been that way for years. Nobody cares. Good Christian man takes care of his family. Nobody cares. Nobody cares at all. He's just not interesting. He does not evoke emotion. He does not connect with fans. Therefore, people aren't willing to put down their hard-earned money to see him in fight. They just they just don't care. They'll rather watch a lesser fighter who they can relate to, who they're engaged with, who they want to see more than see a guy who's the very best in his division or in the world. And Tyrone Woodley, to me, fits that. The other aspect that I actually feel there is a certain racial component to it, but I look at it from this perspective. A lot. I don't know that Tyrone Woodley has appealed to his own race at all. I don't know that he's a big star in the African-American community. I just don't know that. I, I Guys I know don't even know who he is. And part of getting a push in the UFC is because you appeal to a certain demographic and the UFC wants that demographic. And they bring you in and push you so that you can appeal to the other demographics. Tyrone Woodley does not appeal to his own demographic. Just like Amanda Nunes isn't a big star in Brazil. She might be a big star now because she's a champion. She's not, she's not a independently of herself, of, of the title star in her own country. Ronda was a star. Ronda already had fan base. Ronda already had people in her demographic paying attention. So they just wanted to build upon that and take full advantage of it. Just the same way they do with Yair Rodriguez. They're trying to build upon his, his Mexican heritage because Mexican fans are known, are historically known as fight fans. If you can get them over, we're talking about consistent 500,000 buy pay-per-views. We're talking a million buy pay-per-views. Look at Conor McGregor. He appealed to a demographic. They pushed him to see how much farther they could make that appeal go. But they wanted that demographic he appealed to. Who did Tyrone Woodley appeal to? I mean, a lot of black people might say, oh, it's racism. I understand. I support him. But did you buy the pay-per-view? Do you make requests for him to be on shows? Do you demand for him to be on ESPN? Do you demand for him to be on Fox Sports? Do you call in demand? Does he get a reaction out of you? We know there's a reaction for Floyd Mayweather. We know there's a reaction for LeBron James. But there's not a reaction for Tyron Woodley. Not that I've seen. And if he brought in the, the African-American demographic 
the UFC will push them because they never had that demographic. They haven't. If all the rappers and all the and all the actors were talking about him, all the fans were like, T Wood, T Wood, and, and, and all this stuff, he'd have 24-7. He would get all that stuff, but he didn't have a fan base to bring in. Basically, he's saying, I'm the best fighter. I'm the champion. I should be pushed. Conor McGregor wasn't the champion when he was pushed. He was pushed because he has a huge fan base. Sage Northcutt isn't anywhere near champion, but he has appeal. He plays in the media. That's why he's pushed. Uriah Faber, never champion, but he does his own organization, his own media. He brings in a huge fan base. It makes a difference when Uriah Faber's on a car, with a title or without one. You put him on a prelim, highest prelims ever. You put him on a pay-per-view, you get sales. BJ Penn, he appeals to his demographic, and he appeals outside of it. All those guys, there's there's people who get pushed without titles, without being the best, because they have a fan base that travels. And if you have a fan base, people are going to make it a point to maximize your opportunities because they want to get the money that comes with it. You get Conor McGregor a title shot, two million buys. You get Ronda Rousey a shot, a million buys. You give Tyron Woodley defending the title. Uh, the mainstream media doesn't care. The hardcores don't particularly care. And he can say the white people don't care. But let me ask you a question. How many black people really care to see Tyrone Woodley fight? How many of them are really looking out for him? Because before Mayweather, you know, once Mayweather started getting big, black people started, signed on for him. Once he won, you know, he, they, they signed on. Who's signing on for Tyrone Woodley? It's a legitimate question. I've had this discussion with other black fighters. A lot, they believe a lot of the black community does not always support black people as well as white white fans support white athletes white white musicians white fighters they'll support them until they're no good chuck liddell was terrible his last four or five fights people still sold out to it i don't know the black fans are like that part of part of mayweather's selling point was he was undefeated if he would have lost a fight or two would he still gotten that support i don't know i think it's a two-part um thing i agree with a lot of a lot of things he did say um he was talking about how he feels it's inconsiderate the way he's always described as freakishly athletic but people don't talk about the the mental acumen he brings to the game um that is something that you see across all sports when you're talking about uh black athletes um you see it in football you see it in basketball as well baseball like you see this commonly this the common denominator is is when individuals within the sport media members or commentators or like um analysts or reviewers speak about black athletes they talk about them in an athletic fashion with less descriptors of their intelligence or their ability to work hard that part i totally agree with him um i think his i i first and foremost when it comes to race and sports i believe that there is there there will always be an issue when it comes to race and sports, when black athletes speak up, because a lot of times white fans don't understand um, the situation. They don't understand, um, just in general, they don't understand. They're not willing to understand the situation. And the idea is often given that, you know, it's sports. Sports are, are equal. And the only thing that should matter is who wins and who, lo- who, lo- who loses. That's not always the case. Um, you mentioned a lot. You know, you said Sage Northcutt is appealing to fans. You said that Conor McGregor is as well. All of that is very true. Um, yeah, but well, I said, just to cut you off, I said, sorry, once again, I apologize. I said right. they, appeal, they appeal to their demographic. They brought in their own people. They had all their own people behind them before they came in. It's not just appealing to whoever their demographic is. They appeal to it before they came in. And my point was, Tyrone Woodley d- does not bring in his own, just like Cain Velasquez doesn't bring in Mexican-American fans, 
and it's hard to push him, Tyrone Woolley does not bring in African-American fans. There's not a noticeable surge in African-Americans who watch who watch MMA because of Tyrone Woodley. Well, see, I want to challenge you on that, too, because um, you said Cain Velasquez doesn't bring in the, 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 the Mexican demographic, which is true, but there are issues with that because, one, he doesn't speak Spanish. Two, he was born in America. So to Mexican fans, he's not really even Mexican. Um, when you look at Oscar De La Hoya, he was born. He was born in America. Didn't seem to hurt him. Going but I, Oscar could Oscar could speak fluent Spanish. Oscar did a lot of things for the Latino um, uh, community before he even became big, and he still does it to this day. But that's my that's 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 my only point. Oscar did those things. Why didn't Kane do them? I mean, I know he's I know MMA's hard. I, I get it. But Oscar's been competing in boxing and making money in boxing for less time than than Kane Velasquez was because. MMA is only a pro sport. Oscar boxed for years as an as an amateur before he even got to the Olympics and all this stuff. My my that's that was my point. It's the same point I had with Nunes. I think there's a racial component. I'm not even going to deny that. But my dad, it's something my dad used to say at a job. A black he's like some of the guys, black guys I work with say they're being racist. But my dad's like, have you done everything you're supposed to do before you say racist? If you're missing a bunch of days and they fire you, but then your answer is, well, they didn't fire Tim. I get your point. But why did you miss a bunch of days? If you're coming in late all the time, well, they didn't fire Larry. I get your point. But why did you miss? Why did you come in late? If you're doing everything you're supposed to do and you're exhausting your opportunities and you're demanding interviews and you're doing this and you're doing that, and then they don't push you, you've got an argument because you feel you checked out all the boxes. But when you haven't checked out all the boxes, it still might be racism, but it, they're still you've given them room to maneuver it, the conversation, because you haven't done everything. You, you turn down certain media obligations. You haven't gotten your own demographic on your end. Conor McGregor came in with a whole country full of people. Tyrone Woolley has not come in with anybody on his side. He hasn't. He just, he hasn't. He's just been him. And, and even to build off of that, to build off of that, um, Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor has been given a lot of, like he, he came in with a big hype behind him that he built on his own in his time fighting in Ireland. But from that point when the UFC saw that, okay, this is someone we can make a lot of money off of. He was given opportunity after opportunity with the way, with, with the fights that he was, he was booked in and placement on cards to say Tyron Woolley hasn't built those opportunities for himself. Isn't necessarily true. Like he went out and got himself, um, that role in straight out of Compton, he developed his own, um, YouTube series where he's going out doing things in in the community. He went out on his own and spoke to these various schools in Ferguson when 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 the riots broke out. So the UFC as a whole has a has an issue with how they are uh, or how they can do better outreach when it comes to bringing African American fans into the sport. But Woolley has done a lot to tap into that demographic. There's also the issue of the MMA as a whole not necessarily being that appealing to the minority demographic. But when we look at Tyron Woolley as an individual, um, I do think that a lot of his, like he brought up some very good points, like with Stephen Thompson walking out wearing the American flag as if Tyron Woolley's from some other country. Like when I see, I didn't even realize that, but I understand Woodley's point. When no, I, people a, get when people get on ahead, when people get on Woodley for saying that you know he wants to take a big money fight, he wants to fight GSP, he wants to fight Nick Diaz, or he's even willing to fight Conor McGregor to come up. And I look at that, and people are like, "No, you need to defend the title, or whatever." Because Stephen Thompson's right there. You know, he he gets the draw. 
against Stephen Thompson. No, you need to fight him again because you didn't really win the fight. I mean, this he's if you think about it, Conor McGregor's been a champion for how many more months than um, Tyron Woodley? He has not defended a belt yet. So there is a there is a double standard that is placed on these champions, and that's across oh. the board. Um, yeah, there is there there is a sense of promoting these fighters to the appealing demographic. Sage Northcutt didn't have a huge fan base when he came into the MMA when he came into UFC until he was on looking to, looking for a fight, and until he was promoted for his looks. Same thing with Paige Van Zandt. These individuals appeal to the demographic that is most known to follow MMA, white males, and um, that's why they're put in these positions that, that they are. Willie being someone who... Huh? I, said, I just want to ask you a question. And, and it's, it's not even disrespectful. It's like, but who, but once again, like, let's, let's say, let's say these pe- people like MMA. I mean, no offense, but the other sport Tyron really competed in isn't particularly big in his community either. It's not. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm just saying this straight up. Whose fault is that? I'm not trying to say, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you're, every point you're making isn't legitimate. I'm not saying every point he makes isn't legitimate. I'm just asking a general question. If you can't, and this is my whole crux of my argument, he, he's mad because they're not pushing him. But they haven't, in their, in their estimation, he doesn't appeal to the demographic that, they, that is most reliable for them, and he doesn't bring in a demographic that makes it, make, makes it worth their while to invest in him. All those other people, and whether you want to, we can bring in Ray's and say it's white, I think that's probably right. But the fact of the matter is, he, it's like um, those, the people... He's not. He's not bringing in that demographic. There's nobody is getting in behind him on his own side. If he brought in a noticeable African American demographic, I guarantee the UFC would see money. I, I'm not. I, I think race is a part of it, but a lot more of it is just money. If he brought in a bunch of people, like we got to the point where he's got fifteen thousand, ten thousand people signing petitions and calling in and showing up the thing. Would Lee? Would Lee? We'd have a conversation. But he, he doesn't do that. And there's other minority groups that do support their athletes in combat sports. Regardless, Hispanic people have never been super big into MMA, but now they're starting to get into it. Now they're starting to sell out shows in Mexico. But one of the most shows. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say one of the most. One of the most interesting things about Floyd Mayweather is that, yes, he is a massive draw because uh, people want to see him lose. And that became the situation. People, a people want to see him lose, and obviously he's going to have that. He's going to have that group that always, always uh, rides for him. But he never became a um, he never became a pay per view draw until after he dropped the pretty boy gimmick and took on the that, the the money made with the gimmick, the one that people hate so much. Um, for Tyron Woodley, I don't think any one fighter is going to truly um, engage the African-American community. I think there's going to be someone that kind of builds over time because um, John Jones didn't even relate to the African-American uh, uh, community as, in a sense. He didn't. Um, the closest was Rashad Evans, and he was really – he was kind of treated in the same way. If you look at the way um, Matt Hughes used to talk about uh, Rashad when he first got into – the UFC. My thing is, like, I look at the opportunities that may or may not have been presented to presented to athletes, and I have to I have to kind of ask questions about them. Um, 
we don't we don't know fully what opportunities were were or were not presented to Woodley, but we've seen some things that are kind of like eye opening, like the like the video that they posted before UFC 205 when he was gonna the first time when he was gonna defend against Thompson, and they show that video of Nate Marquardt knocking out um, Tyron Woodley. They've never done that for any other champion ever. So why is it that they think it's a good idea to promote their current champion in such a way um when you see the thing about it is like it's hard for me to even make an opposite point because i don't want to make it seem as if i'm not with you in all these points because this is yeah this stuff i thought about but i also but i but just to be fair and to think in a bigger realm tyron woodley did kind of you know he hasn't been the most agreeable champion they've had you know they've you're used to company men i mean conor mcgregor just recently has been talking back and saying i'm not going to do this and i'm not going to do that mm-hmm. but prior to the, that streak conor mcgregor is like who do you want me to fight oh mendez last second fine uh diaz last second fine whatever last second fine ronda rousey would just fight 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 whatever ronda we need you to fight another card i just got done fighting a car to go we need you ronda fight chuck liddell they were just company men Tyrone Woodley isn't a company man. He's not doing what they want. He's not saying the things they want. He's not acting the way they want outside a race. He, they want a guy who's going to take the fight they want, say what they want, say how great they are. Tyrone Woodley is not dude. And if you're He's a guy, not. if the company wants you to do one, if I'm on the show, like let's say we have a show and I'm just like, man, Raphael, this show is some garbage, blah, blah, blah. I don't know why they even put other people's pieces on there. Minds are killing. I might notice my piece is not showing up as much. I might notice that oh, we're just going to do the show without you this weekend, Shawan, because we're doing this as a team and you have your own agenda and your agenda is going against ours. Your agenda isn't to make us more money. Your agenda is to make you more money and you <laughs> making more money doesn't help us out. So I might start, people might start undercutting you. You see it happen all the time. And I'm not saying it's not all the things you said. It probably, it most likely is. And I see that as a black person, I get it. But I have to look at the other point. Yeah, like, like there, there's there's definitely a point counterpoint issue with this um, situation, which is why I wish I hope at some point Willie comes out and talks about like examples of what's occurred yeah, to him. If he's, gonna talk, he's got if he's going to talk, you know, one thing about Conor McGregor, I think Conor McGregor put on an act. I think Floyd Mayweather put on an act, but and I don't I don't know that I don't know that Woodley is going to be willing to do that kind of thing to sell himself, and he shouldn't have to. He should just get to be himself. But trust me, Conor McGregor isn't a lunatic all the time. He's not. It's an act he puts on a point. Mayweather, I know people who know him. He's not a lunatic. He's not a doesn't care about people. That, that's a show he does to get his brand out there, to get his fighters out there, to get himself out there. It, it's part of the show. If Woodley says, I don't want to do the show, I have no problem with that. I respect that integrity. But you can't complain when other people who are willing to do the show get certain opportunities. And I'm not saying they're still not treating them badly. I think they are. But if he doesn't want to do the show, he doesn't have to do the show. But there's a price with coming with not doing the show. There's a price with not traveling all over the world to do every single interview, interrupting your camp. You do that all the time. You become a bigger star. You take every media call. You take every interview you can. You be on any show you can. You'd be surprised how much your fan base increases. You take every every little opportunity. You're right, favor. Take any opportunity. Anybody wants to talk to you. Small small newspapers, small small TV for anybody. He'll talk to him about MMA. He'll talk to him about his fighters because he's trying to brand them. He's trying to get them out there. Any opportunity, he'll interrupt his camp, interrupt whatever the fuck he's doing to get his opportunity out there. A lot of fighters, and this is among all fighters, they don't want to do that. They want to fight. They want to con- 
behave a certain way. They want to be themselves. And sometimes who you are doesn't sell. Sometimes just being the best is not enough. Mayweather was the best for years. Nobody cared. Andre Ward's the best. Nobody cares. Amanda Nunes was the best. Nobody cared until she opened her mouth. Now people care. Conor McGregor came in talking. And he came in talking stuff, pointed at all the big guns, telling him what he's going to do them, and then he backed it up. He came in and grabbed people's attention. What Woodley Zing, even if he was a straight up, like he was a white guy, I don't think he'd be a big star anyway. Guys like guys with his angle usually aren't. I mean, Brian Stan was a clean cut, nice guy, a war hero. Yeah, he, he didn't have a big fan base. Mark, Matt Hughes was a star, kind of, but he wasn't really a star. He just had been around so freaking long. What clean cut family man is a huge star in MMA? I can't name one. Um, what do you mean? It depends on what you mean by uh, huge star. Like somebody, I mean, like somebody like even Stephen Thompson. He's not a star. Chris Weidman's a clean cut guy. He's not a star. Who's the clean cut? I just state the facts. I dress professionally. I act professionally. Guy who's a huge star in MMA now. Who's who's that guy who's a huge star in, in boxing? I, I mean, know, I think I um, well, Saul uh, Canelo is. Um, well, I think I think huh. The, the, the Mexican contingent boxing. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, you, there aren't there aren't too many Americans that are big, big, big names. Andre Ward is probably the closest. Um, you 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 got Triple G. Um, and from an MMA standpoint, you know, uh, I'm thinking of like a Uriah Faber. Um, a Dominic Cruz has definitely grown. Um, his Cruz Cruz is. I mean, he's got those bars, dude. When he talks, he talks. He he'd be killing people. With the, I mean, he's better than a battle rapper with his lines. He looks professional, but he'd be hitting those lines on people, dude. I mean, the stuff he says, Tyrone Woodley doesn't talk like that. Tyrone Woodley's like a straight-up dude. He, he doesn't like talk like that. You're, yeah, that is very true. I feel like he I mean, he struggles when it comes to going back and forth with, with people in such a way. I, I, think the, I think you're right. The UFC has done him a huge disservice. I think they hold a grudge against him. I think there is a racial component, especially with the fans. More so with the fans than the organization. Does the organization know they can make money off him? They would take every. They, they would take full advantage of them. I think there's a lot of racist fans out there. I think there's a lot of fans who listen to MMA and watch MMA because it's a sport. They can see people who look like them dominate on a routine basis. I mean, I, I believe that for a fact. There, you know, I I really do believe that. But as as a responsible, if you want to call MMA MMA media journalist or person, I have to explore every angle of it and not just go for the most obvious one, because while it still stands, there's other issues. To me, there's other things that work that keep him from being in the big star. And I think even uh-huh. the UFC pushed him, I don't know that he'd be a big star. Because I don't know anybody else, white or Hispanic or whatever, who has his image, who who takes his approach with the media, who would be a big star. If there's a white guy talking about racism in, in MMA, uh, I don't think he'd be a big star either. I, I don't think they'd like that either. I don't think they'd like that. And if he was playing hardball with the UFC, I don't think they like that either. They don't like when people tell them no. They don't like when people don't agree to their game plans. They don't like when people upset the apple cart, especially these new guys. They don't like it. And Tyron Woodley has been playing by his own rules for a long, long time. And I'm a fan of his. I think he should do whatever he wants. I think he should say whatever he wants. I think he should be more detailed. He should let us all know. If you're gonna if you're gonna go to war, go to war. Let it all out there. You can't you just let us know what's going on. But I understand he has a career and a family to provide for, so maybe he can't do that. And I still support his point. And I still think it's an issue. I think it's a big issue. I just don't think it's the only issue. And if that makes me a bad person or makes me, some people say I'm fake for saying that, I don't think I am. I think I'm stating legitimate facts. I can definitely but, agree with you there. But there is a racial component. And, and I mean, me and you probably can see it for obvious reasons. Other people may not see it. 
But when other people make their argument, even though I might not like admitting their argument has merit, I have to admit a point when it's legitimate. Like if somebody told me, they're like, Conor McGregor had his own demographic. Does Tyrone Woodley has his demographic? And I'm like, no, he don't have it. Yeah, no, no, he definitely doesn't. Um, I can agree with you on that. So, yeah, like, I, I, we're definitely having a good conversation about this situation here. And I, and I think the most important thing is he has to win at UFC 209. He can't get, oh, he, yeah. can't, he can't let this get him distracted and he end up losing that belt to Steven Thompson because all of, all of the conversation becomes moot at that point. So he has to get this win and he has to look impressive when uh, doing it. The only way, the only way you get to have, like the only way you get to have these, Floyd Mayweather got to have these uncomfortable conversations because he never lost. Bernard Hopkins got to have these uncomfortable conversations because he was, he hadn't lost for a long time. Tyron Woodley hasn't been that dominant. Like, really, I like him, but he's beat a lot of guys. But if you look at the rankings of guys he's beaten, it's not super impressive. If he loses his fight, God forbid he loses by knockout. Um, I mean, he can still make that stance, but a lot of people, a lot of that, a lot of people aren't going to want to hear it now because now he's going to, he's going to, he won't have that belt to draw the media in, and he's the same media he's been calling out is going to be the guys who might not want to listen to him now. Like, Hey, you didn't want to talk to me before. All you wanted to talk about was what you want to talk about. You ain't got the bell now. I don't, I don't have to listen to you talk. You're not even a big star. You're not even a big moneymaker. So I don't have to listen to you talk now because you ain't got nothing. You don't have anything for me. You don't have a belt. You don't have a huge fan base. I'm going over here. And that puts him in a very tough situation. So a fight like this really is a must win for him. Not life or death must win, but as far as the platform he needs to make the points he makes and, and actually have people listen, have people have to tolerate what he's saying, this is very important because Tyron Woodley, contender, wasn't talking like this. Never, never. And if, if he's noticed this stuff now, that means he's noticed it for years. Tyron Woodley, contender, never said a thing. Tyron Woodley, strike force, never said something of this nature. Tyron Woodley, champion, is still the same Tyron Woodley, but he's been a little bit more pointed in what he said and a little bit more outspoken on national media national media instead of just podcasts and MMA media. So he's a different guy now. Once that bell goes away, it, it gets a little bit harder for people to listen to that point or listen to things that they don't want to hear because now you don't have anything that we want. You don't have ratings. You don't have fans. You don't have a bell. We don't want to listen and we will start ignoring you. Okay. Okay. So um, with that in mind, man, let's, let everybody, let's go ahead and close the show off for today. We've had some great conversations and uh, definitely had some good commentary going back and forth with the events and all the news going on today. Um, what are you working on for this week for the site and beyond? Uh, I think I'm all worked out. I like had three pieces this week. I did the, I did the, uh, this a review. I, I did the, the Brendan Ward piece, the almost famous Brendan Ward. I did part two of my consultants and um, analysts, outside analysts for MMA. And then I did the, it's about, it's about to get real, Cerrone mastered it all. Um, so I, I think I, I think I'm all out on pieces right now. I, it took a lot to just really like, but I try to, I try to research them a little bit and talk to other people, you know how it goes. Mm -hmm. And you have a busy life and it just takes a lot out of you to do that. And then also um, I've had a couple of trainers and people reach out to me about maybe doing some work for some fighters. So they've been kind of, you know, talking to me, showing me fights, seeing what I see in old fights, seeing what I've seen in certain situations, trying to gauge what I can possibly bring to their their camps or their tables. So that's, that's been another handful. So I, in between the writing and, and these pop quizzes I've been getting on my MMA knowledge and situational fight knowledge, 
it, it's been just exhausting. It has been, and then I, I have four, I have four girls, three of which play summer basketball, and they've been trying out for a lot of the better teams in Texas. So it's been like doing pieces, doing reviewing, reviewing videos, and taking these kids out to give them opportunity to ball out. So it's been beyond hectic. Okay, yeah, I could definitely get that, man. You, you're, yeah, you're I doing, like you, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely doing a lot, man. I'm, um, I'm in the same boat. Got a lot of writing in this week as well. I got some more coming. Um, just about this sport, football. There's a lot of grappling going on. Um, definitely trying to pick up my coverage of that for Buddy Elbow, and still trying to devy into this um, wrestling as well. So I mean, there's so much going on, but there's always something to write about. Always a new story to pick up on. Um, man, so with that in mind, man, let's, I thank you everyone who's listening to the show today. Be sure to, um, share the link that you see, click like, click share, put this on your Facebook, Twitter, wherever you may be, but, um, we appreciate you and we will be back next week for another edition of the MMA ratings podcast. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And when you're, whether you're going SoundCloud, or you see us on YouTube, feel free to comment. If there's things you like about the show better than others, you can hit us on Twitter. You can leave comments on the page. We're just trying to provide the best product for you on your behalf. And we're doing everything we can to get the best writing content and audio content out to y'all. But we don't know what to keep giving you if we don't know what you like the best unless you tell us. So please share with us. We want to know. We're open to criticism. We're open to opinion. We're here for you. We don't just do this for ourselves. We love it. But we're doing this to bring in fans and, and educate fans and help fans understand the sport and everything that goes into it better. Definitely, definitely. Um, and with that, man, have a great night, and we are out of here. You too, sir. Good night.